gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Agent Smith. It is March the 15th, and the world is in an uproar. Agent Smith doesn't have to ask me this time if there's anything that caught my eye in the news, because it's hard to find anything but stuff about Corona. How are you doing, Agent Smith? Are you surviving in the end times here? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing all right. Can't complain. Hasn't yeah. really come down to Dallas yet, at least not much. I have a high of de degree of confidence that I have it. I didn't go and get tested. Part of the reason is they probably wouldn't test someone of my demographic. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, a lot of people were trying to go in and get a confirm or deny on whether or not they have that or something else. And there's a limited number of tests. And as I've seen in some of the reports, the biggest burden of this whole thing is on the healthcare systems of the world. It's just not really prepared to deal with this uh, level of people showing up and requiring attention. And a bunch of people are also probably just concerned and want to be safe. So mm -hmm. that also bogs down the system. And a lot of people are very panicked right now. So it's hoping we can try to break down what is the impact of this we don't really have a ton of precedent for it, but maybe we can figure some stuff out. Well, I don't have a whole lot of information on it because I think uh, one of the big problems with the outbreak, well, it's officially a pandemic now, so maybe I should call it that. It's a WHO announced that it is officially a global pandemic. So one of the problems with this particular global pandemic is that there is so much uncertainty about uh, not only the virus itself, but also uh, expectations regarding the virus, you know, just how people are going to respond. And I think there's a, I think there's two important elements there. I mean, for one, uh, the COVID-18 virus, which is the technical name of it, uh, that was decided upon by the scientific community, exactly how lethal it is, is not entirely known, but it's relatively more lethal uh, than, say, the flu, you know, a fair amount more so, especially for people, as we've talked about before and has been talked about in media. It's especially it's uh, especially lethal for uh, the elderly and people with compromised immune systems. Uh, but I think even for them, it's the mortality rate is somewhere between 10 to 20 percent. I don't remember exactly where it was between them, but kind of in that range, which is relatively high, uh, but it's not Ebola either. And I think that speaks to one of the problems with uh, COVID-18 is that it kind of straddles the line between being a clear-cut public emergency and not being so. And I think as a result, uh, in the early days of the virus's outbreak, there was some uncertainty, some temerity on the part of public officials about just to what extent they should utilize public tools uh, in response to it. You know, certainly in China's case, part of the problem is that they just didn't know anything about it, really. You know, there was they knew there was an outbreak of some kind, but they just didn't have the details. And so the response was particularly lacking in that case. But even after it spread outside of China, there has been some indecision on the part of many governments about uh, just how big of a problem it really represents and just how much they needed to mobilize public resources. So I think some of that ambiguity is really partly to blame, at least, uh, for some of the lack of public action up till this point. 
and some of the mixed messaging we've seen in places like the United States, where the federal government, in particular the Trump administration, has been sending some signals that it's a serious threat, some signals that it's not, some signals that people should continue going out and uh, disregard the problem, and then kind of alternating that with actually it is a problem, you know, wash your hands, engage in social avoidance, what have you. So that uncertainty, I think, is partly to blame. So that's one factor, I think, that really describes in large part, well, in, at least in part, uh, some of the repercussions that the virus has been having. And then I think the other part is the uh, individual responses by individual members of the public. And I think for the broader part of the public, there's just so much uncertainty about what to expect from the virus that there's been a lot of, well, mixed responses there as well. Some people have been kind of disregarding it. They don't think it's that big of a deal. Other people have been panic buying, you know, they've been hoarding toilet paper as the internet has been uh, focusing on, but among also other resources, hand sanitizer, et cetera. Uh, some of that is sort of prepping, you know, there's a, for those of you not from the United States, we have what's called a prepper community. And there are people who are just constantly preparing for what they think could be a collapse of, you know, law and order, collapse of civilization, et cetera. So they have lots of food, uh, other necessary supplies, weapons, et cetera, that they've kind of hoarded. They're in their homes or in other places and storage units in preparation for uh, some kind of end game that they think may or may not be in, on the horizon someday. <laughs> you know, some of those people are probably feeling a little prescient lately. But that's part. those are the kinds of people who might be more inclined to engage in the kind of panic buying that we've been seeing. But there's also been opportunists who have been panic buying in order to engage in uh, what's called scalping, where they buy something, uh, hoard something, knowing that they can turn around and sell it at a profit because there's a shortage. And uh, that's been partly to blame as well for a lot of the uh, shortages that we've been seeing and some of the hoarding that's been occurring, the so-called panic buying. So I think that really speaks to uh, the other side of it. I think that's the other big element we're seeing, sort of the public's uncertainty and in turn the wild range of uh, mixed reactions on their part. And we're probably not done seeing that. There's probably going to be more interesting manifestations going forward. But at this point, at the stage we're at, the public seems to be torn between panic and apathy. And part of that is political. I think I posted an article on my Twitter account this past week uh, talking about how Republicans and Trump supporters in particular in the United States are much more likely to uh, kind of discount how serious the virus is and to, you know, in some cases even see it as a hoax by the Democratic Party, apparently. I don't think that's terribly likely, but that does suggest that there's going to be uh, at least some portion of the population that's not going to be terribly concerned with it, suffice to say. Yeah, it's interesting because the effects of it are not just how the virus affects humans, but also how humans react to this situation and how the economic impact total is the combination of those things. Mm -hmm. So it's how people are getting sick and actually requiring care, how many people are actually dying from it, and then also how people's behavior has changed as a result of it. And comparing it to Ebola, it's way more contagious, but way less lethal on average which is still kind of scary for some people. I was thinking about that when I was going out because I think I may have it based on my set of symptoms. I do have some upper respiratory stuff going on. Seattle hit, was hit pretty hard by it as far as places in the U.S. go. But for me being 30 years old in good health and no other complications, it's 
a very, very weak sickness that doesn't really prevent me from doing too much. And as a streamer, I'm kind of self-quarantined anyway by trade. <laughs> yeah. But I did go out once and I was trying to keep minimum safe distance from boomers just so yeah that's that's a real risk is that you could infect someone who does have uh, risk factors yeah yeah that's the responsible thing to do at this juncture yeah. a lot of people are very pleased to get to work from home so the gamers are rejoicing i think well those who can i mean that's one of the big public policy questions right now you know to what extent can people work from home? You know, to what to what degree is that feasible, given the uh, economy that we have and the types of jobs that a lot of people have? Some people obviously can. You know, if you work in the tech industry, obviously you're relatively more likely to be able to do that if you weren't already. But if you're doing like a gig economy type job, or if you're working a labor job, you know, a type of job that requires you know physical labor, it becomes relatively more difficult. Then you know, it may not even be feasibly possible to do that. So. That poses a public policy question then, because you want people to either work from home or at least, you know, stay home to minimize uh, the exposure of the public. But if you can't do that, then how do you facilitate that on a public policy level? Do you compensate those people somehow? Do you basically pay them to stay home? Do you give them some kind of insurance? I mean, there's been different proposals, but it's a difficult challenge in a place like, say, the United States, where we have a liberal economy, that is to say a liberal, classical liberal economy, to use the American parlance, in such a system, then there's not really a lot of scope for government action. And uh, as a result, there's not a lot of, there's not as many public policy tools that a liberal federal government like that of the United States can implement in response to a crisis like this, uh, in contrast to, say, the People's Republic of China, where they have no such qualms or restrictions. And in turn, you saw the scale of the response over there was quite large in terms of the ability of the government to uh, effectively shut off and shut down entire cities, you know, some of them quite large, like in uh, Ground Zero, you know, the city of Wuhan, which is a very large city, I think around circa 10 million people, that the government was able to basically shut off from the surrounding province and uh, even shut down the economy within the city, you know, effectively forcing people to quarantine. So that's going to be a problem uh, for the United States government in particular and similar such governments. But again, that, that just has to do with that, uh, the original you know, point that you were making, getting people to stay home, that's going to be difficult, you know, how to facilitate that. Yep, certain jobs require you to go outside. I was having a discussion with my Uber driver after all of this had started happening, and a lot of companies in Seattle are allowing their people to work from home. And the driver was saying that it was really nice that the traffic was so low, business had slowed down. But in terms of the way that society moves, it does raise an interesting question of what is the value of getting a lot of these workers to go into the office if they can remote in and function? Mm -hmm. Some jobs, obviously, you have to be physically present, but some you don't. There is the team element of showing up and clocking in and things like that. But from a happiness and efficiency standpoint, it may be possible for more people to remote into more types of jobs as time goes on, and this is kind of an unintended pilot test for that. Mm -hmm. And this is also a test, too, to just see what the global response is to a pandemic in general. And relative to different viruses, if you could design any virus that could have been unleashed, this is relatively not the scariest one. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's kind of like a situation that can allow us to develop some practice and figure out 
what each country's response would be in this circumstance so that the next time it happens, it won't be catching us completely off guard. Because mm -hmm. I have no memory of a situation like this where there was such a broad-based response and level of panic. Yeah, I think the closest you could come was maybe around 10 years ago or so with the, what was it? Bird? I can't remember if it was bird flu or swine flu as one or the other. And uh, that was a big deal for a while. You know, the media certainly made it out to be, but it ended up being relatively mild. Relatively, there's still people who died, unfortunately, but it wasn't as, it didn't become a pandemic like this one is, and it wasn't as lethal as this one is. And like you say, there wasn't nearly as much of a public mobilization uh, regarding the issue. So there's, in that sense, yeah, there's, there's really nothing that's been quite like it for some time. There was the Ebola outbreak back in, what was it, 2014 or so. But, you know, as you pointed out, that's not nearly as contagious as this either. So it, it really is kind of a new public health issue that we're experiencing now. And, uh, it you know, it seems to be evolving into a historical issue. I mean, it I don't know if it's going to be this earth-shaking historical moment, but it, it certainly is dominating day-to-day -day life in a way that a lot of people are going to remember for a while. Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting public policy question. I mean, beyond just uh, how to deal with uh, getting people to work from home, I've been trying to compile a list of different ways that states are responding to the uh, COVID-18 virus just to kind of get an idea for what sorts of public policy tools can be employed. Because, you know, like you pointed out, this is real, fairly unprecedented. So I really don't have a conception in my mind of how a public policy machine, you know, an institution can respond to something like this. I tend to think more in terms of economics or political economy. So, but this is in, this is a more of a public health type thing. And so it's a bit outside of my wheelhouse. So taking a look at, uh, oh, thank you, Fuzzy Court. <laughs> COVID-19, my apologies. So I've been compiling a list of public policy responses to try to get a, get an idea of what kinds of tools are available to governments. If you want, we can kind of briefly review that. I don't have a whole lot at this point, but it could be worth kind of getting a look at. And it's not really, it's pretty much as much as I can contribute to the conversation because besides kind of meta commenting on it, like I did when you first asked me about it a couple minutes ago, I don't really have a whole lot more I can kind of contribute beyond telling people to wash their hands and uh, do social avoidance and do all that kind of thing that uh, public health officials have been already been recommending to people. Because again, this is outside of my wheelhouse. I'm not a public health expert. I don't really even have a strong background in public health economics. So I can't even really look too much into that. So, uh, you know, if you're willing, Neuro, we can kind of do this. Hell yeah. Sounds okay. good to me. So just real briefly here, I'll kind of list some of the things that I've been seeing either proposed or actually being done to try to help with the public response to the COVID-19 virus. So one of the things, and you know, most of this stuff is probably going to be stuff people are pretty familiar with, uh, mandated quarantines, for one. So this kind of comes in two forms that I've seen thus far. One is for travelers coming from infected areas. So if you're coming from, say, uh, China or some such, there are some places that have mandated a certain period of time that you have to quarantine yourself. China is actually doing this now, which is perhaps a little ironic, given that they were sort of the ground zero for for the virus. But if you come to China from outside China, then you have to quarantine yourself for 14 days. I have a friend in China who's actually having to do this right now. And I've been kind of keeping in touch, trying to see uh, how that's been going. And the 
kind of going back to what I mentioned before about uh, how the government in China has much more scope to operate because it doesn't really have rule of law. And one of the upshots there is that they can just kind of do whatever they want or need to in response to a public crisis like this. Uh, they actually had police visit my friend <laughs> because they knew that they had come recently from the United States. And so they kind of talked talk to them to make sure that uh, they knew to make sure that they were observing the quarantine period, because apparently the penalty for breaking that quarantine is death. So <laughs> they're very keen on keeping track of uh, the people who do that, apparently. And they're, they're certainly making a point of it. And uh, in turn, international travelers are definitely trying to observe it, given the penalty. So that's one thing you can do, uh, quarantine, internet, quarantine for international travelers. Uh, another aspect of mandated quarantines is quarantining people who live in infected areas. And so this is something that happens internally. Again, to refer to the Chinese example, the Chinese government de facto quarantined the entire city of Wuhan, uh, among others. And there are other places that have been trying to do this. Uh, Italy, uh, in the early part of the outbreak there, tried to uh, shut down some of the major cities in the north, think specifically in the province of Lombardy, in order to try to mitigate the spread of the virus. That didn't work, and now they've effectively shut down the entire country. But in the beginning, they were trying to quarantine those specific areas. And uh, I think in the United States, the most recent example, thus far only example I know of, is that the city of... I think it's pronounced Raquel. You know, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Oh, I said New York City, didn't I? New York State. Um, in the state of New York, there's a city called Raquel. It's a medium-sized, smaller-type city. And uh, the governor, I think, has uh, placed it under quarantine and mobilized the National Guard to help enforce it and to support the citizens there. We'll be talking a little bit the kind of support in a little bit here. So those are the two manifestations of mandated quarantines that I have on my list thus far. And by the way, if anybody listening uh, notes that I'm missing something from the list or has relevant examples, you know, please do contribute in chat. Maybe I should just make the usual disclaimer now. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about, you know, especially on this. So, you know, if I say anything wrong, biased or stupid, please do correct me. I don't read the chat while I do this, but I will read it later and eventually see what you say. So you know, participation is encouraged in that regard. And so especially with regard to this list of public policy responses, you know, please do uh, contribute as you like, uh, if possible. And the format here is a presentation of facts. We're not really trying to tell you how to think about stuff. And also, if any of the information presented is incorrect, feel free to give those corrections because Agent Smith wants to know so he can fix it. He's not here to proselytize or to get you to cheer for a certain sports team or political party. <laughs> yeah. Right on the button. Let's see. The next one I have here is traveler restrictions. I think, again, this is pretty well known. Uh, this involves banning flights from infected areas. Uh, so the U.S. placed a travel advisory on China, flights from China, and a number of uh, airlines in turn mitigated or stopped flights from and uh, to China. Uh, it's interesting that they stopped flights to China. You know, Again, the friend that I was referencing before had to uh, fly to another country and then on to China to get back home. It took them a while to do it too. So that's one manifestation of traveler restriction. There's also, uh, the U.S. has also explicitly banned at the federal level people from, people who have been in the Schengen area in Europe uh, at any point in the previous 14 days to their traveling to the United States from coming to the United States. Uh, this is a pretty recent one. It was part of that really mangled, badly managed uh, address that the president made to the public last week 
I don't know if you got a chance to see that. Did you, Nero? I did not. What's the TLDR? Uh, Well, President Trump came on uh, national TV and made a public announcement about uh, how this was a public health emergency and that uh, I don't think he officially announced it an emergency. I think he only did that in the past couple of days. But at the time he was talking about how it was an issue and how certain actions that were going to be taken. And one of them was the ban on people traveling from the Schengen zone. That's going that ban is going to be in place, I think, for the next two weeks thereabouts. Uh, but there's also a bunch of other things. And uh, it was badly managed, I say, because, uh, I mean, every other thing he said ended up having to be corrected after the fact. You know, in the day or two after he made the announcements, uh, he actually had, well, he and his staff went out and made myriad corrections. So it, it was not terribly well managed. I think even uh, some of the commentators on Fox News were even kind of giving him some grief on account of it, which is very unusual. So that's the that's the TLDR there on that. But uh, as part of the announcements was this ban on Schengen zone travel. And uh, are you familiar with the Schengen zone? No. You may actually be familiar with it without knowing the name. This is the freedom of movement clause uh, aspect of the European Union where people can move freely between countries without needing the visas or uh, passports. So oh, yeah. if you want to travel, yeah, you, so you're familiar with it. Traveling from like France to Germany is easy. You just pretty much drive between them and it's no big deal. You know, there's no border checks or anything. Uh, not every country in the European Union though has that. That's not an automatic thing. You actually have to uh, meet certain criteria and uh, basically be accepted for it, uh, accepted into it. And uh, the zone that rep- that this area encompasses is called the Schengen zone. So that's an area that is, it encompasses most of the countries in the European Union, but not all of them. Not all of them. I think the, the UK was never in it. Ireland isn't in it. Uh, Romania and Bulgaria are not technically part of it yet. Uh, and I think maybe a couple others, but I think most of the rest are. So the United States government announced that... Uh, yeah, like I said, you know, if you if you're traveling from there, you basically can't come to the United States. I think layovers are still okay. Um, I'm not sure how that works exactly. You know, if you're if you're looking to me for information, specific travel information, I would recommend you look at an official account because I don't know the specific details of how they're planning on implementing or enforcing this. But nominally, that's what is announced, and so that's a that's a representation of a, a travel restriction of the kind that I'm talking about here. So mandated quarantines, uh, travel restrictions, and uh, the next one is public testing for the virus. So this is important because uh, it's not necessarily import- as important for the individuals being tested, although obviously that's relevant information, as I'm sure you're feeling right now, Neuro. Rather, it's more useful at a public policy level because it tells you just how much, uh, well, for one, it tells you where the virus is, you know, specifically where the cases are but it also tells you how rapidly it's spreading. You know, it gives you data that you can use to understand the spread and extent of the problem. And so public testing is important for that reason. And the countries that have been experiencing a lack of public testing, like say the United States, uh, are suffering from that because they don't really, that is to say public health officials uh, at all levels of government just don't really know the extent of the problem. They don't know how rapidly it's spreading. And as a result, uh, the public response has been a bit lacking. Uh, in turn, it doesn't help that um, people can't really afford to get self-tested, so to speak. That's one of the problems in the United States is that 
there's not a uh, you know national healthcare system. You know, people have their own insurance, and as a result, uh, it's relatively expensive to get tested, or at least it has been. There, one of the things that the president uh, talked about during his uh, address is that he had gotten insurance companies to agree to pick up the tab for testing and treatment. It turns out that they did agree to uh, pay for testing, to make testing free. That's what I read anyway, but that they did not actually agree to do free treatment. Uh, So that was something that had to be corrected after the fact. So uh, that might make it easier uh, to get more testing, but it's not clear yet whether or not that's going to happen or how that's panning out. Still early days. Maybe somebody more familiar with the subject in chat can kind of update me on that. So that's uh, public testing and the importance thereof. Financial support. Now, this is the one that I have the most entries for, because obviously one of the big questions about COVID-19 beyond the actual public health problem that it poses is the economic impact that it's going to have. And obviously, I think we talked a little bit about this before. Uh, You know, there's obviously going to be a fall in consumption since people are not going to be going out and buying things uh, when there's a virus going about. Uh, But there's also a supply side problem in that people are not going to be coming into work as much. And in turn, they're not going to be producing as much. So there's a double headed problem there for the economy. And it's not clear just how deep the impact is going to be. That's, you know, like we were talking about last time. uh, That's one of the reasons that the market really took a hit. You know, the stock markets really dipped, have been dipping actually over the past couple of weeks is because at first they weren't sure that it would really spread much out of China and how disruptive it would be economically. And then once it really started to spread outside of China and started to have more of an economic impact, then it really kind of spooked markets. And so there was a big uh, collapse in a number of stock markets, pretty dramatically so in some cases. So financial support then is thought to be necessary in order to try to counteract uh, that economic effect and prevent it from turning into a general recession. So some of the examples of financial support here I have uh, include suspending mortgage payments. That was something the Italian government mandated. Uh, That's going to to be partly to make it easier on people who can't go to work and uh, get paid, you know, either because they're self-quarantining or to encourage people who are not self-quarantining because they can't afford to, to do so. You know, so it kind of eases the financial burden on them. Another form of financial support, encouraging banks not to foreclose on small businesses during the outbreak. This is something I've heard discussed, but it's not really something you can mandate, especially since this is something mostly being discussed in liberal democracies in the West. Uh, So central banks can't really force banks not to foreclose on small businesses, but they have been talking about trying to encourage them informally uh, to go easy on small businesses that are almost definitely going to be taking a hit. Uh, because of a fall in consumption due to the virus. And it's hoped that if uh, banks would, you know, withhold from doing that, kind of stay their hand for a little while, uh, then the there will be fewer bankruptcies and businesses will be more resilient. More will survive the uh, downturn here. Another one here, deferred tax payments. This is something that the U.S. government is considering. Uh, again, the idea is to uh, reduce the financial burden on small, medium-sized businesses, as well as larger businesses in this case. And uh, in this case, they're still going to have to pay the taxes eventually, but because everybody knows that there's a shortage of liquidity now on account of the lack of demand, they're going to go easy on businesses and give them a break here if they actually do do this. Again, it's just proposed for now, but I suspect they'll probably end up doing it. 
And uh, I imagine other governments around the world are also considering this. I don't have any specific examples, but I'm sure people in chat from other countries uh, might have some in mind. Let's see. And then uh, federal loans for small business. This is another one proposed by the U.S. Same idea. Since banks are probably not going to lend as much, federal government may step in and try to offer them small business loans through the, uh, I think there's a specific administration, small business administration or some such in the uh, federal bureaucracy in the administrative state that's uh, responsible for dealing with small to medium-sized businesses. And so they may offer loans through that agency in order to try to ease the burden on small businesses. Uh, in the European Union, the European Central Bank is, has announced over the past week or two that they're going to do this. They're offering loans to small, medium-sized businesses. So, you know, if you're a small, small medium-sized business and you can't get a loan, you need one just to kind of tide your business over while, during this uh, trial and demand. You could well get them from uh, the government if things continue apace. Let's see here. So more funding for delivered meals for elderly. This is something that's been proposed in the United States. One of the programs here in the United States is a program called Meals on Wheels, and it uh, it uh, gives, I think, low cost or maybe even free. I don't quite remember which, but it delivers meals to the elderly who sometimes have trouble traveling outside their home in order to get food uh, or who maybe have trouble affording food. So uh, relatively more elderly people are now having to self-quarantine either because they're sick or because they don't want to get sick. And in turn, they may increasing more relatively more elderly people than are finding it difficult to uh, get the food that they need. So giving more funding to something like Meals on Wheels or whatever, whatever the equivalent may be in another country, uh, that is a way of helping facilitate uh, self-quarantine and helping the elderly, whom again are particularly vulnerable to the virus, helping them try to avoid sickness. Uh, let's see, temporary funding for those without sick pay. You know, we kind of already talked about that. Uh, you know, some people just can't avoid work because, you know, they have that kind of job. So proposed in the United States is uh, some emergency funding, basically, for those kinds of people to help them pay their bills while they're not working. Uh, loosening fiscal restraints. This is something that's uh, specifically been proposed in the European Union. I think, in fact, I, I think that's moved beyond proposal and has actually been implemented now. Uh, normally in the European Union, there's a rule in place that governments cannot have a deficit, uh, cannot you know, their, fed, their budget, their annual budget cannot have a deficit in a given year beyond a certain point. And as people who follow the Eurozone crisis know, that's not a rule that's been implemented very strongly uh, over time. But nominally, that is a rule that uh, countries are supposed to follow. But now uh, the European Central Bank has relaxed that rule uh, so that governments can spend relatively more uh, in response to the crisis. Uh, let's see here. And a publicly financed investment fund. Uh, this is kind of similar to the uh, investment. This is similar to the lending for small businesses that I talked about before. Uh, but this is not being done by the European Central Bank. This is being proposed by the European Union. And the idea here is to, uh, again, inject funds into the economy that are being withdrawn by the financial sector, which is uh, having, kind of, having to rein in lending on account of the economic downturn represented by the virus and its effect. Tax cuts to impacted industries. Uh, this is something the European Union has done specifically for the airline industry. Uh, it might be something done in the U.S. too, but it's, it's debatable. It's kind of, that's one of those hot button topics that politics, politicians tend to get hung up on. But in the European Union, uh, they have passed some tax cuts for some of the industries that have been the most impacted for intuitive reasons, kind of in the vein that, I'm, that I've already explained. 
And uh, this is an interesting one, delivery of free school lunches to homes. One of the big um, problems posed by the virus, you know, the pandemic, is that uh, there's a question of shutting down schools. This is actually something I'm going to talk about in a minute here. But if you shut down schools, then you reduce the exposure of people to the virus since, you, you know, you're getting rid of a crowd and schools are basically just one giant crowd. So if you get all the kids to stay home, uh, you mitigate the risk of exposure. But poorer families sometimes rely on the free lunches that schools provide to poorer families. And by forcing uh, children to stay home, that puts a financial burden on poorer families who are dependent on that uh, program, on programs, school programs like that to feed their children. So in uh, New York City, they actually announced in the past couple of days, I think, uh, that they're actually not going to close schools specifically because uh, so many families are dependent on those free school lunches. And obviously there's a clear trade-off there in terms of exposure to the virus and financial burden. And uh, New York City has apparently decided to focus on the financial burden above and beyond the uh, risk of exposure. But that illustrates the kind of public health problem and trade-off that a lot of public institutions are facing. Now, in the province of Kerala, I should say the state of Kerala in the India, they have an interesting solution to that problem, which is to just have the lunches delivered to the students at home, which is actually a pretty clever idea. Uh, Kerala is kind of known for that. I guess someday we'll have to talk more about Kerala. That's a really interesting state in India, really interesting history. But uh, within this context, uh, the program, which has just recently passed, I don't think it's something they were doing before. They specifically passed a bill allowing this uh, in response to the crisis is to just have free school lunches that had been provided to poor children to have those delivered to the children at home. So a pretty clever uh, innovation there on the part of the state of Kerala. So those are different forms of financial support I have listed. Again, if you have more, you know, please do list them. But this is just to give the listener an idea of what kinds of actions uh, are being taken. So let's see, I've got a couple more here. Monetary support. Uh, this is, has to do with monetary policy and the part of central banks. Uh, the response is pretty much what you would intuit, uh, lower interest rates. You know, interest rates have been cut across the board by a number of central banks. Uh, I read somewhere that the Fed cut it by a 0 0.5, 0 0.5, uh, what was it? 50 percentage points, I think that is. Somebody more familiar with math, somebody better at math can correct me on that. Uh, but they cut it. They cut the Fed interest rate by 0.5 uh, percentage points, which is a pretty substantive cut. Uh, the Bank of England also made a pretty substantive cut as well. So central banks are uh, doing what they can um, beyond offering, you know, loans and things like I was talking about before. Their main tool is interest rates, and they've been cutting those to try to introduce more liquidity into markets. Uh, so let's see. That's monetary support. So next is preventing large crowds. Again, this is probably stuff the listener is already familiar with, but just to quickly run through this, canceling public events, either voluntarily or uh, because the government of one sort, of one level or another forced them to, obviously that's an intuitive response to a contagious virus like this. Forcing workplaces to close, the Chinese government did this, you know, they all but forced most workplaces to close down in order to force people to self-quarantine. Uh, working from home, we already talked about that. Case study there is Google, uh, which is now allowing a lot more of its workforce, you know, if not most or even all of its workforce, work from home. Closing public institutions, e.g., schools. You know, uh, not a, you know, schools are the principal example, but also public workplaces, town halls, uh, what have you. You know, different any kind of manifestation of public institution that uh, involves large numbers of people that's getting canceled or delayed. 
public provision of delivered food supplies. Uh, part of that is Meals on Wheels, like I was talking about before. Uh, but in another example, to go back to the city of Raquel in New York State, uh, which is a, under uh, state-mandated quarantine, the National Guard was mobilized not only to enforce the quarantine, but also to provide supplies, food, etc., to the residents. So that's an example of the government providing supplies to people. The Chinese government also did this in uh, quarantined areas. They, uh, well, in addition to the private sector, obviously, private sector actors continued to deliver food uh, through the crisis, but the government also got involved and I think even provided some financial support to the private sector institutions that were participating. Uh, so this is another action that's been taken. Uh, public provision of payments to allow wage laborers to avoid work. Already talked about that. Uh, subsidizing broadband bills and mandating increases in bandwidth to facilitate working from home. This is something that the state of Kerala in India has done. You know, another example of Kerala. Uh, white collar workers in Kerala uh, obviously have a lot more scope to work from home, uh, but it can be a little difficult if you don't really have a good internet connection. So in recognition of that, the government has mandated that telecoms, uh, specifically ISPs in Kerala, uh, increase the bandwidth available to customers, even if they're not paying for very high bandwidth, uh, a temporary measure for the purposes of the crisis. So these are all examples then of preventing large crowds or, crowds or trying to facilitate that. Uh, supply management. So some of the things done in terms of supply management, forcing strategic factories to open. This is something that the Chinese government has done. Um, some factories produce goods uh, that are necessary to uh, mitigate the impact of the virus, you know, things like hand sanitizer or face masks. China obviously is one of the world's, world's leading producers of face masks, but they were starting to run low because a lot of the factories producing them had been forced to shut down uh, as part of quarantine measures. And so the government actually went out and declared that they had to open up again. Uh, some difficulty getting workers back, but uh, they actually then forced workers to come back. They mandated that if you work at a place like this, then you have to come in. Much to the chagrin of some of the workers, didn't much appreciate being forced to be exposed to the virus or put in a position where they're in danger of being exposed to it. But uh, that's an example of trying to mitigate some of the impact of the virus there by encouraging the production of the supplies necessary to try to control the outbreak. Something else that's been done is discouraging panic buying. We talked about panic buying before. Uh, so some governments have been trying to uh, use information campaigns to discourage people from doing that and making it clear uh, the uh, deleterious effect it's having on uh, public health. You know, people who need those goods are not able to get them or are forced to pay inordinately high prices in order to get them, which is not great for, uh, again, public health. Uh, one of the responses to that uh, is rationing supplies. And I read that uh, apparently some stores in Canada have been doing this where they limit uh, sales of certain types of goods. Again, toilet paper being the case in point. Uh, they limit the sale of certain uh, goods to one or two per customer. So you can't go in and just buy their entire stock and then hoard it in your garage. Uh, you have you can only buy one or two. So that's one response that uh, some stores on their own initiative have been doing. So those are examples of supply management. Social avoidance kind of speaks for itself. Uh, some examples of that nursery homes have been discouraging people from visiting uh, or have been asking people to stagger their visits over time just because nursery homes are uh, particularly vulnerable uh, to infection. Well, not vulnerable to infection per se, but obviously if there's an outbreak at a nursery home, that's going to be a lot more deadly uh, for the uh, Denzians there. And I think one of the early cases of uh, the virus in the manifesting in the United States was actually a nursery home in Seattle, up where you live, Neuro. There's a whole bunch of people, and I think a number of them have actually died now, unfortunately.
but that just illustrates how much of a problem that is. So that's an example of social avoidance. Uh, gatherings by friends are being discouraged. I think I just read a, a couple hours ago that uh, a government in Europe, maybe it was Austria, uh, declared as an emergency measure banning assemblies of more than 50 of uh, 50 some people, 50 or more people, something like that. Yeah, I'd heard some places have banned over 100 people gatherings. Yeah. So those are all examples of uh, institutionalizing either formally or informally social avoidance measures. So that's that's the end of my list here. Again, it's not meant to be a complete list, but it's meant to give the listener just an idea of the public response, the uh, public policy response to the virus, uh, such as it is thus far. And these are the kinds of measures that have been implemented. Not all of them have been implemented other, everywhere. So you know, maybe in some places, these are the kinds of things that you can look forward to. Uh, or in places that haven't really experienced the virus much, but probably will later, these are the things that you have looked forward to. So hopefully it's useful to somebody. I just thought it was interesting from a public policy perspective, all the different ideas and uh, responses. Yeah, it's interesting with the thing like quarantine and retirement homes or nursing homes and how you want to limit people leaving too much, but if someone were to get it inside, that would be a pretty big problem, I could guess. Yeah, it would. Very much so. But that's pretty much all I had on the virus, really. You know, it's going to, um, it kind of seems at this point like it's going to run its course almost regardless of what happens. Uh, there's going to be more public policy action, you know, almost for sure going forward, depending on how, how much worse it gets. But, uh, you know, most likely it's going to infect a lot of people, especially in liberal democracies where governments can't really shut down whole cities and, you know, do all that kind of thing. Uh, so it's going to run its course. Presumably, eventually it'll burn out, but it's not clear how long that's going to take. I think a number of major, like sports in the uh, United States, uh, pretty much every major sports league in the U.S. has suspended their season now, which I don't, I've never heard of before. <laughs> I've heard of lockouts from uh, labor disputes, but I've never heard of a season being lost to uh, to an outbreak like this, a global pandemic. So but none of them even really have an idea of when they'll come back. It's all pretty open-ended. And I think uh, the latest update was that they had extended the suspension into May on the uh, guidelines of the, the latest guidelines of the CDC. So it may be a couple months yet before it really burns itself out. At some point it will though. And at that point uh, we'll be talking more about fallout from the virus. And it's not really clear what that's going to be. Again, I don't know that there's necessarily going to be long-term fallout. Um, unless the damage is much greater than expected, and that's possible. Uh, but otherwise, this may be more of a short to medium term phenomena rather than a long term impact. But that's an open question. You know, right now we're very much in the middle of it, or increasingly so in the case of the United States. Well, I'm not an expert on the mechanics of how this particular virus works, but if you're looking at the big picture German disease meta of humans on Earth, the problem with this one is it's a newly evolved virus, so no one has immunity to it by default. It basically has to attack someone's immune system, and the immune system responds and learns how to beat it, and then you, I think, become immune to it. They were saying that it was maybe possible that someone could get it twice or something, but this has happened historically, where a new thing pops up and nobody's system is prepared for it, so everybody gets sick, but the survivors are all pretty much immune, so it ends up being beaten for the most part there's also seasonal flu and things that come up year to year and then 
migrate around the world. It's an ongoing battle and there are going to be more diseases that come up and evolve that we don't have immunity to. So it's best to get our practice in now and figure out what we're supposed to be doing in situations like this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely is a test case. And that is, that, that actually is another interesting aspect, you know, uh, beyond what specifically public institutions are doing in response, uh, how well different public institutions are, are responding is another interesting thing to observe. I don't really have a list of that yet because I, I think it's kind of hard to judge since obviously uh, states that are responding poorly are not going to be particularly transparent about it, you know, especially authoritarian states like Iran. Uh, where they don't really have an incentive to be transparent. They are, they're just inherently opaque because of opaque political systems. Uh, but that in turn makes it difficult for someone like me to kind of just observe and judge just how well they're responding and just what exactly they're doing. That's probably something that's going to come out more over time. Uh, there are definitely places, though, that are responding better than others. Uh, you know, China had a weak early start and then responded more strongly later. Um, Iran has been pretty weak. <laughs> you know, Iran's... Have you heard of Iran's response at all, Neuro? No. It's a little funny. People are dying, so I'm not going to say it's funny, but uh, there was one humorous aspect. Uh, you know, in the early days of the outbreak in Iran, uh, the health ministry, specific, I think it was specifically the health minister, uh, came onto television and made a statement about how it was under control, etc. You know, blah, 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 don't worry about it. But he was sweating a lot. He seemed to be in a bit of discomfort, and it turned out that he actually had it. He was actually infected. And as it later turned out, it was definitely not under control, and the virus ended up has ended up becoming a big problem in Iran, uh, partly due to the inability of the government to really contain it or take strong measures to uh, deal with it. But that was kind of humorous how the health minister himself kind of came out and kind of tried to bullshit people a little bit, but then ended up himself visibly ill. Uh, while he was trying to do that. So Iran is an example of a weak response. Um, South Korea has been doing pretty well. The United States has been pretty, I would say, pretty weak thus far. Uh, there's been the whole testing controversy here about, you know, how public health institutions have been, uh, have a lack of testing capacity and haven't been very upfront about that. And uh, then, you know, again, the mixed messaging from the uh, administration has not been helpful. Local level responses have been better. Uh, you know, not unusual for the United States. Local localities tend to be more on the ball about that kind of thing. Uh, Europe has been okay. I think uh, Italy has been hit particularly hard. I actually had an article I haven't read yet lined up talking about why Italy has been hit so hard, but I haven't read it yet, so I can't comment too much on that. But for whatever reason, Italy has been uh, badly affected. Um, I won't say it's been just terrible. I'm not saying it's completely out of control, but it seems inordinately affected compared to other places. So I don't know uh, if we have anybody from Italy here who maybe could comment on that. That would be helpful for me. There is an important note of social etiquette that is uh, unusual for the United States. Maybe people who have not been to France or Italy don't know, but kissing as a way of saying hello is kind of a similar format to a handshake mm. where you just see someone it's nice to see you even if it's not a romantic or flirty thing it's just a kiss on either cheek so interactions like that i think are uh, more likely to spread certain stuff that's just standard fare mm. for yeah. those regions that's a good point yeah 
Yeah, social norms can sometimes exacerbate the outbreak of a virus. You know, now that you mention it, I'm reminded of um, actually the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Uh, specifically in, uh, I think, Liberia? Liberia and Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone, I think, was the ground zero for that particular outbreak. And uh, one of the problems that people had is that uh, when somebody died from the virus, uh, well, I mean, when somebody dies in general in those cultures, it's customary uh, to have, what was it, something like an open casket funeral where you kind of interact with the corpse. I don't remember exactly what it was now that I'm trying to remember. But there was some funerary custom in those cultures that actually made the outbreak worse because people would expose themselves to the virus in the custom. And that actually spread the virus even further. And the government actually had to come out and tell people to just cremate their uh, dead and to forego this custom, which a lot of people were really not comfortable with. Uh, Something to do with people not being able to properly pass on without the custom in question. I apologize for not remembering the custom. It it just kind of slips my mind. But I do remember that being a problem that the public health officials were facing at the time. They were just really struggling to convince people not to go through with the custom because it was doing so much damage in terms of spreading the virus. So social customs, uh, the lesson there is that social customs can definitely be a factor. And it's tricky with the spread of germs and viruses and things because it's effectively invisible. You can't Mm. see it passing from person to person. And also in places that have less education on germs and how they work and Mm. how tiny they are, they might not believe you. I think I watched a documentary on Central African Republic. And one of the problems there was that there was a lot of skepticism about the medical industry. If people went to the hospital, they were more likely to die. Therefore, hospitals are dangerous and bad. (laughs) Which, intuitively speaking, like that line of reasoning kind of makes sense. But you could also take the other side of, well, if someone went to the hospital, they probably already had something that was a higher risk situation. Yeah. So education is really the key for that to get people to respect these rules, not just the what of how you should respond in a time of some disease outbreak, but Mm -hmm. why those procedures are helpful. There was discussion in my chat yesterday, too, about the difference between hand sanitizer and soap. I think soap may be better, like soap and water and just using the friction to break off anything that might be on your skin rather than hand sanitizer. Oh, really? chat no to confirm that i would certainly be interested in hearing the response to that (laughs) that sounds like useful information yeah i mean if you're if you want to cover your bases you could get both yeah yeah hand sanitizer is alcohol based and alcohol evaporates very quickly Mm. gotcha so in that sense soap would be better well how are you feeling exactly since you are apparently suffering from it sure so i could report the symptoms just for posterity and for the record basically it's like the weakest in the weak range of flu i put it on a scale from one to ten where ten is the most intense flu that i had which i actually had at utd one time i was kind of head spinning, super hot and feverish. I couldn't get anything done. Like I couldn't focus on doing homework, looking at the computer, things like that. So I was pretty bedridden for about two days. I went to the 
health center and got it checked out and things like that. That was a really bad flu. I put that at like a eight, eight or so in terms of intensity. Mm-hmm. This is maybe a two for me where gotcha. for a few days, my energy level was a lot lower when I would typically stream for eight to 10 hours. I was streaming for four to six instead, but I still had enough energy to have a pretty high impact broadcast while I was live. And my voice started to give out a little bit earlier, but it's kind of like just taking a chunk of my overall energy rather than being debilitating in any way. Gotcha. I could still work out and do push-ups and do normal stuff like that. I'm just trying to drink water and get my rest and things of that nature. But okay. I have a comparatively strong immune system. I usually get over stuff pretty fast. Okay. And well, I've heard that the reactions from individuals can be pretty different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not everyone is having the same set of symptoms. Yeah, I've heard that. But if you are, you know, if you do feel worse, you know, take a break. You know, you don't, we can cut this short if you're not feeling up to it. I've been feeling better and better. I think when I first started experiencing symptoms was Sunday morning of last week. And I kind of feel like I'm on the trail end of it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, Seattle has a lot more cases, relatively speaking, in the U.S., so there's relatively higher risk that you would get it since you live up there. I only went out twice, too, which is kind of interesting. I went to the restaurant, and I had a meal, and I also got the mail, and that was about it. Yeah, maybe but the that mail. was apparently enough. Yeah, maybe the A lot mail. of people are touching the mailboxes and stuff, though, so. <laughs> Who's to say? <clears throat> but yeah, that's uh, that's what I've got on that. Stay safe, everybody. As Fuzzy Cord said at the start of this, panic, but stay calm. <laughs> well, was there anything else that perhaps caught your eye besides the global pandemic? It's been pretty hard to find other stuff, to be honest. Oh, My feed is just flooded with this post about the infographics of the death rate for different age ranges, lots of cool charts and graphs. Friendly reminder to people to look at the X and the Y axis of graphs and see what they mean. Mm-hmm. Because I saw one that was the fatality rate by age range. And if you just look at the bars, the bar at the end is filled up all the way to the top, which makes it look like a hundred percent death rate. But the, the top of it, on the y-axis was 20%. Yeah. And that was for 80-plus-year-olds. I think there was a 18% yeah. fatality rate or something. Yeah, that sounds right. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Pick <laughs> your graphs, people. You can make good money doing that, I'm telling you. And so a business I tried to get into at one point. I once had an interview at a think tank. Didn't end up getting accepted. I think maybe my allergies helped ruin that for me. <laughs> they just, I don't know. I must've walked under a, the wrong kind of tree. Cause when I got into the building, my allergies just went nuts and I couldn't stop sneezing. And there was a problem cause I had forgotten. I didn't bring any like napkins, paper towels, tissue. I didn't have anything on me. So I kept having to stifle it. And that's just really uncomfortable. And I'm already nervous because it was a job interview. So it was just, it did not go well, suffice to say. Just tell them you're allergic to bullshit. <laughs> I think it's really funny. I don't know. 
Or they'll be very offended. Yeah. It's a coin flip right there. Yeah, a coin flip. Oh, yeah, that would have been a nice job to get, though. It would have been pretty fun. Anyway. Well, the other goofy news items, too, are around all the different people who Trump has met with who tested positive for it. And then we have the celebrity <clears throat> cases like Tom Hanks, where yeah. people are like, don't die, you're over 60. Survive. Yeah, Tom Hanks came down with it. His wife came down with it. There's been a couple celebrity cases. I think Donald Trump had himself tested and he did test negative mm-hmm. from what I read anyway. I Googled it the other day because I was curious. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. He may he may yet get it because it seems to be spreading around Washington a lot. It seems governments in particular seem to be getting it. I think Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister mm-hmm. of Canada, has it. There's a couple other people in uh, Europe who have been getting it, leaders, that is. So for whatever reason, uh, politicians in particular seem to be susceptible. The tricky thing from my perspective on it is, say that you quarantine and limit it in a region, how long do you have to do that? Because if it can be transmitted from person to person and people are traveling constantly, whenever travel opens up, some people could still be carrying it and then it just kind of gets restarted all over again until everybody has it and it becomes kind of a global thing that we move past yeah that's one of the concerns that is kind of a concern secondary outbreaks yeah that's it's not really clear what can be done about that that's actually one of the reasons china is restricting travel into china now is because they're afraid people who have it from outside china as part of some of the newer outbreaks are going to come to china and start spreading it again And kind of like what I was talking about last time, one of the concerns within China is that the government is going to start pushing people to come back to work too soon and that maybe they're going to start getting infected again and that there will be another round of outbreaks within China. So that's definitely an open question. That's that's something to watch going forward, just to whether or not that happens and if it does, uh, what governments do in response or what they even can do in response. Chad is saying that only Justin Trudeau's wife has it. He does not have it. Ah, thank you for the correction. I thought I'd remembered him saying something about self-quarantine, but I guess you don't necessarily have to have it to self-quarantine. Maybe you're just concerned you have it in self-quarantine. Maybe that's what it was. Or you don't have it and you don't want to get it. (laughs) Well, yeah, that too. I don't think we're in any danger of that, though, Nero. Well, obviously you are, since you've already probably already have gotten it but yeah. uh, at least you won't be spreading it around much since you're inside most of the time yep self-quarantine by trade what's up <laughs> well there actually has been a fair amount going on besides uh global health pandemics and whatnot uh, i think that would be a breath of fresh air at this point yeah so why don't we talk about the uh, massive plague of locusts in africa Oh, that sounds like a very Zerg-related topic. <laughs> yeah, we talked about it before, but uh, you asked me what was making it so bad, and I didn't really have a good answer. So I kind of went out and tried to figure that out, and I actually did find an article that talked a bit about that. So I can elaborate a little bit more on just why uh, the outbreak of locusts in Africa is so bad right now. So let me just uh, pick through this here. I haven't read the notes in a while, so you know, bear with me here. And let's see, I have a quote here. Uh, Let's see. According to the UN, the current heavy infestations can be traced back to the cyclone season of 2018-19, 
that brought heavy rains to the Arabian Peninsula and allowed at least three generations of quote-unquote unprecedented breeding that went undetected. Swarms have since spread into South Asia and East Asia. So that's part of the problem right there. It's an unusually active cyclone season, allowed uh, overbreeding, if that's a word. I may have made that word up, but you get the idea. Uh, violent conflict in the region made it worse, uh, Yemen being the case in point. Uh, a lot of the breeding grounds were inaccessible to governments as a result, and so there wasn't really sufficient action taken to suppress them uh, when they were breeding, uh, which is normally one of the ways that you can kind of minimize the numbers uh, of locusts that later on spread out. <clears throat> Let's see. Surveillance systems for locusts had broken down, again, conflict regions. Uh, also, another problem is that a lot of the swarms are happening in countries that don't generally see locust swarms that much. And uh, those countries in particular uh, are lacking resources to really deal with it. Uh, let's see. The locusts are still breeding in difficult-to-reach areas, so that's another problem. Uh, even if you do have the resources to deal with them, sometimes they're just way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, or you don't have the surveillance necessary to detect them because they're out in the middle of nowhere. And then that, in turn, makes it exacerbates the difficulty of controlling the population. Uh, let's see. The FAO says it's received uh, only $33 million of the $138 million that it needs to clamp down on the locusts before regional harvests begin in April and May. Um, if the population of locusts is not significantly curtailed before the harvests begin, then they're going to feed on the harvest, basically, and then there's going to be uh, further breeding, which means the swarm will get worse. Uh, so lack of public resources uh, on the part of international organizations is also exacerbating the problem there. So let's see, uh, some statistics here to give you an idea of the problem. Uh, what I have here is that a swarm covering a square kilometer, uh, which would contain about 40 million locusts, can consume the same amount of food in a day as 35,000 people. And mind you, the swarms that we're dealing with are a lot bigger than just a square kilometer. So we're talking about a massive amount of food loss in the uh, affected areas. And uh, let's see, and experts have a warning. They say that uh, swarms have laid eggs across the region and that if they're not destroyed, uh, their numbers could grow 500 fold by June. Now these locusts, uh, the swarms are already massive, you know, historically massive. So if they grow 500 fold by June, that's going to be a big problem. So that just illustrates the scale of the difficulty and uh, also some of the reasons uh, why countries are having difficulty addressing it. Uh, basically, lack of public resources, conflict zones, inhibiting uh, addressing of the problem. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. <clears throat> oh, and the uh, cyclone season as well. Man, it just sounds like a video game mission. You must kill all the locust eggs before they hatch and take everyone's crops. <laughs> mission success or failed. Well, in Pakistan, they've got some of them, and they actually had a weird solution that has apparently worked in the past. It's, it's apparently like a historical solution that's been used uh, previously in history. They've uh, made some kind of deal with the Chinese government uh, to import um, ducks, just like 100,000 ducks, and apparently ducks will eat a lot of locusts. Uh, well, even one duck will eat a lot of locusts. But if you get a whole bunch of them, then they'll, they'll tear through a swarm pretty efficiently. Sire, the locust count is growing rapidly. I don't know if we're going to be able to handle it. Just do it, man. 
We can't, sire. We don't have the resources. Very well. Send in the ducks. <laughs> the ducks, sire? Yes. The ducks. <laughs> yeah, well, that could... <laughs> Oh, shit. Well, that's apparently what's coming. And apparently that has been effective historically. Apparently ducks are a pretty useful tool for dealing, de dealing with the problem. So, uh... I don't know. Maybe that's the solution. Maybe East Africa needs to start importing lots of ducks. <laughs> yeah, I've read that they're actually pretty easy to handle, too. That's another reason they're going with ducks. There, there apparently are some other animals that can be used to uh, eat them, you know, deal with the locust swarm. But ducks are more desirable because they, they're, more easily to, more, they're more easy to manage since they're a kind of, what would you call it, a herd animal, a flock animal? Something to that effect, you know. Basically, they're uh, they stick they stay in groups, so they're easier to herd around and manage uh, in that vein. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I didn't. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, locusts and ducks is not usually what we talk about here, but it's interesting. <laughs> well, we... I really like when people use natural solutions for natural problems. It's like the technology is already evolved and available. We just need to send them in mm -hmm. well pretty effective yeah if they're available anyway sometimes not unfortunately yeah it's interesting too for something that swarms like locusts how their population can spike really fast so it's harder to anticipate and deal with which means that the predator population whatever would eat the locusts and control their population can't really reproduce at the same rate yeah unfortunately so just fyi there's a storm here apparently so if my power goes out uh that's possible it's possible my power may go out so if i disappear that's going to be why probably let's see so any particular region you wanted to touch on i did have some africa stuff since you've been asking me that more lately yeah let's do it all right let me find it here real quick i don't have a whole lot on africa and I think I think most of it was actually locust related, since that's been a pretty big deal over there. Here we go. So let's see, West Africa. There's been uh, elevated Sahel militant violence. This has kind of been an ongoing ongoing problem since uh, the Libyan civil war. Uh, Libyan civil war resulted in a lot of uh, weapons from the Libyan military uh, flooding the market, so to speak, in West Africa, and a lot of militant groups ended up getting their hands on them. The most uh, obvious example of that was uh, in Mali. Uh, in Mali, jihadists allied with, uh, I guess they would be Taregs. Uh, I want to say Tareg separatists. Uh, Taregs are nomads who live in the uh, Sahara Desert. <clears throat> and they've kind of been marginalized by uh, a number of governments in the Sahel region for a long time. Because there's not very many of them and they're... They're not very economically important to the economies of those countries. Generally, the uh, settled areas in the southern part of Sahel countries are more dominant economically and politically. So Taregs kind of get short shrift. So Taregs separatists allied with jihadis and using the, some of the weapons that they got from Libya, uh, they almost in Mali overthrew the government. Uh, they seized a bunch of territory in the north at the very least, but they were also threatening some of the cities in the south. Uh, I think French intervention helped turn them back. Uh, but it's been an on-again, on on off-again problem ever since. Uh, 
there actually was a falling out between the jihadis and the Tarek separatists. So that alliance isn't really functional anymore. You know, that's not unusual. Jihadists have a way of pissing people off. Uh, so that was perhaps predictable. But even so, there's still jihadist activity. And it's been exacerbated a bit by uh, tension between herders and farmers. Uh, you know, herders herd goats, sheep, what have you, and they prefer vast open lands. Uh, but sometimes in times of drought or environmental change or etc., cetera, uh, they can come into conflict with farmers when they try to occupy the same land. Basically, they'll, they'll conflict over land. And there's been a lot more of that happening over the past five, 10 years in the Sahel region. And the result has been some violence between the two groups. Uh, generally, herders and farmers in the region tend to be different distinctive ethnic groups as well. So there's also an ethnic conflict dimension uh, to the tension. And that, that, of course, only serves to make it worse. You know, uh, ethnic tension is bad enough as is without an economic motive undergirding it. So as a result of that, there has been more French intervention and military activity in the region. As we've talked about before, West Africa is kind of in France's sphere of influence. That's uh, part of what's in France known as Francafrique. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. But uh, their area of traditional influence is there, and the French military is not uncommon there. The governments there generally have pretty close ties with Paris. Uh, the U.S. in turn has also been more active there, uh, special forces, and uh, I think at least one drone base in, I want to say, Niger? It's either Niger or Chad. I don't quite remember off the top of my head. I'm going to go with Niger for now and trust Trat to correct me on that. But I think there's at least one major drone base uh, in Chad, or, or Niger, rather. And uh, that military commitment has escalated as uh, jihadist groups, jihadist activity uh, has escalated and as violence in general in the region has escalated. Uh, I think the initial logic for the introduction of American forces, though, was Boko Haram in Nigeria. Uh, they're particularly active in northeastern Nigeria, which is sort of the part that's in the Sahel geographic region. And that's also in like a tri-border region with some other countries. So the United States tries to provide support to help them deal with Boko Haram, uh, as well as intelligence to help the French deal with the jihadists in Mali and uh, other groups as well. You know, there's kind of an ongoing conflict between Muslims and uh, animists and Central African Republic as well. I imagine the U.S. is involved to some degree there. But I think that's more of a local issue than a transnational terrorist problem. So maybe they don't pay that much attention. Uh, but that is uh, one of the big issues facing West Africa now that's been in the news uh, lately anyway. Uh, other West Africa news uh, has to do with Guinea-Bissau. I'm going to guess you've never, you've probably never heard of Guinea-Bissau, have you, Nuro? No, I've heard of Guinea. Yeah, Guinea, there's actually three different Guineas in West Africa, if you can believe that. There's a, I think it's the Republic of Guinea, and then there's Equatorial Guinea, and then there's Guinea-Bissau. Uh, Equatorial Guinea is the one that used to be a Spanish colony. It's a very small territory. It's the shape of a square. Uh, you can barely see it on a map. It's not actually the main part of the territory. Actually, the main part of the territory was two islands off the coast. That's actually where the capital used to be, I think. But the dictator who took control, I think, after independence, moved the capital into the interior, the mainland bit because uh, he was paranoid about international intervention or some damn thing. You know, dictators do weird shit like that sometimes. It's a very poor country, suffice to say, and it hasn't been very well run. Uh, small countries don't always get more attention, and so sometimes it's easier for them to have 
brutal dictators. So long as they stay out of the headlines, they can kind of be as dickish as they want without too much problem. And Equatorial Guinea is a case in point. It doesn't help that they have a fair amount of oil. That's uh, Equatorial Guinea is in the region of uh, Western Africa that has a lot of oil deposits. It's sort of the same stretch of territory that uh, Angola, Nigeria, etc. get their oil from. <clears throat> anyway, that's snapshot of Equatorial Guinea randomly for no reason. Uh, Guinea is relatively better off. I think they're one of the more stable countries in West Africa, actually. But they're very poor. I think it's one of the chocolate producers in West Africa. Used to be communist, actually. They had, or at least they had a government that leaned communist after independence for a long time. They still had ties with Paris, but they were one of the countries that uh, post-independence from France, they kind of distanced themselves more and tried to align a little more with the Soviet Union. But Guinea-Bissau, that's the one I, that's the original one I wanted to talk about. Uh, Guinea-Bissau was a Portuguese colony, actually. It's one of the few that the Portuguese had in, uh, in Africa. You know, the better known ones are Angola and Mozambique. You know, the, everybody knows those were Portuguese colonies and those had a pretty dramatic history in late 20th century Africa. So those are more well known, but uh, the, the Portuguese also had a very small colony in West Africa called Guinea-Bissau. And, uh, since independence in, I want to say, 1975 or so, uh, Guinea-Bissau has continued to be poor. It's continued to be a dictatorship dominate, dominated by uh, generally parties. It hasn't really been one-man dictatorship so much, uh, but rather you know, authoritarian cliques, if you like, you know, uh, legislative authoritarianism, I guess you could say. And uh, the big economic activity there right now, to give you an idea of... Uh, how things are going there is drug trafficking. It's uh, not really drug production per se. It's not like they're growing a whole lot of uh, coca and what have you. Uh, rather, it's more of a drug trafficking kind of intraput. You know, it's sort of a staging ground for moving drugs made elsewhere onto Europe, principally. I think Europe is the main market. So control of that drug route is a big source of revenue for obviously drug kingpins, but also, I suspect, the government since uh, the political elites in Guinea-Bissau probably have a hand in it one way or the other. So the drama in Guinea-Bissau over the past couple months has been uh, an election. You know, there was an attempt to, at an election anyway. Uh, but the party uh, in power, which had been the one party allowed in Guinea-Bissau until democratization in the 90s, there's a whole bunch of countries that democratized in the 90s after the Cold War ended. Guinea-Bissau was one of them. Uh, but the one party that had been in control before democratization more or less stayed in power afterwards. And after this most recent election, uh, they actually had a guy run who was not an insider. And uh, he nominally was set to become president, but the party didn't really like that. And so the military stepped in and just kind of removed him. And so now the party is going to nominate somebody new to replace him. I think actually, let me rephrase that because I think I remember some of the detail now. Uh, the guy who had been president uh, was stepping down and he had announced a successor, a specific successor, uh, but the party elite didn't like him. And so they had the military kick him out. So the party elite are going to get their guy in instead of their old leader's guy. That's the kind of the gist of it. Uh, mind you, Guinea-Bissau is a small enough country that a lot of the politics comes down to family dynamics. You know, so it's not like, you know, disparate people from different parts of the country coming together and becoming political elites and forming networks. Uh, generally, these are a few select families that are involved in politics and where everybody all kind of knows each other. 
So, you know, it's not so much, let's get rid of that guy. It's more, let's get rid of Bob. I don't like him. Let's get our guy in. Probably our family's guy. So the reason that's news, because obviously it probably won't surprise people to know that there's a country in West Africa that's unstable. Uh, the reason it's interesting is that uh, there's an organization in West Africa called ECOWAS. And don't don't ask me what the acronym stands for. I can't, I don't think I can remember it. It's, it's something like Economic Community of West Africa or some such. Uh, but it's been a growing institution, not only in terms of integrating uh, economies of the region, but also as a political actor, a kind of supranational uh, institution, not quite as powerful as the European Union, but uh, kind of in that vein. That's sort of the ambition. And one of the things that uh, ECOWAS has been doing over the past couple of decades has been to pressure countries into maintaining some semblance of rule of law. Um, sometimes that can be a little hypocritical. You know, the principal state behind ECOWAS is Nigeria. And it can be a little hypocritical for Nigeria of all countries to complain about corruption and instability in other countries. But uh, their heart is in the right place, so to speak. They want to maintain stability in their region. Uh, they want the economy to not be affected by you know chronic instability like it has been in a lot of Africa for a long time. And so ECOWAS has come out uh, in you know because of the drama in Guinea-Bissau and said that if Guinea-Bissau cannot maintain uh, order in their country, then there could be an ECOWAS intervention uh, that would try to basically forcibly restore the previous outed president into power. Uh, not the one who's retiring, but his guy that he'd selected who had been set to become president. So that probably won't happen. I suspect Guinea-Bissau will have its ducks in a row, so to speak, uh, by the time the ECOWAS deadline hits, you know, such as it is. Uh, but that is an illustration of how much more stable West Africa is becoming uh, on account of ECOWAS and on account of higher expectations, not only among governments and ECOWAS, but amongst the common people of West Africa. There is a common desire to have a higher standard for stability. And even if Guinea-Bissau doesn't really meet that standard, you know, again, the political culture there is very corrupt and uh, there's not really a substantive democracy or professional governance. Even so, the pressure brought by outsiders in the region is a force for good. That is a disincentive uh, to letting things get out of control there. So that's an interesting snapshot of regional politics in West Africa, I thought, uh, even if Guinea-Bissau itself is maybe not of interest to a lot of people. Chad helped us out with ECOWAS. It is the Economic Community of West African States. Oh, there you go. Yeah, thank you, Chad. Yeah, that's an interesting institution, and that's definitely one to watch going forward. You know, West Africa has been a kind of French playground for a long time, but ECOWAS is starting to steal their thunder a little bit. I don't think they'll completely displace the French in the future. I think they'll probably more likely be partners. But I suspect over time, ECOWAS will increasingly become the senior partner in that relationship uh, if they are able to become more successful economically and politically going forward. So let's see, uh, that's West Africa. East Africa, again, that's locusts. That's been the big thing. Uh, there was a significant Al-Shabaab leader assassinated. Al-Shabaab is the major terrorist group in Somalia. Uh, it's also... I, calling it a terrorist group is a little, it's true. I don't want to say that's not true, but it's also not a full picture. You know, sometimes governments like just to call groups they don't like terrorists. Uh, Al-Shabaab is kind of an example of that. It is a terrorist group. They have definitely perpetrated a significant amount of terrorism, but there's more to them than just that. You know, there's sort of this legacy uh, force. You know, basically they were 
the uh, what would you call it? Uh, the enforcement arm of the old Islamic Courts Union. I think we've talked a little bit about the Islamic Courts Union in Somalia before. Uh, they collapsed after a intervention by Ethiopia, maybe, gosh, more than 10 years ago now. It's been, it's been some time. I think it was around 2007 or so, more than 10 years then. Uh, but anyway, they were sort of the enforcement arm. And then after the intervention, they turned to uh, rebellion, basically. They rebelled against the Ethiopian intervention in the government they tried to install. And then over time, they just sort of evolved into a terrorist group. Uh, at first, it was more of a genuine rebellion against what they perceived to be Ethiopian intervention. But over time, uh, the UN-recognized government, which also kind of happened to be a UN-appointed government, which is not great for its legitimacy, the UN-appointed government, let's say, uh, managed to convince some of the, uh, what would you call them? Let's say tribes for now. Uh, some of the major tribes and groups that comprised uh, Al-Shabaab were pried away from Al-Shabaab and they agreed to become part of the formal government. So Al-Shabaab used to be more of a formal resistance and a coalition between different groups that wanted to throw out the Ethiopians and maintain the Islamic Courts Union. But over time, it basically became just a couple of the major tribes in central Somalia uh, that were more tied to jihadism or Islamic terrorism. Their whole bag, it, you know, jihadism is not their only motivation. They also want to get rid of the Ethiopians, restore the Islamic Courts Union, uh, as well as kind of get benefits for themselves. You know, it's a tribal culture with a little to no government. So, you know, there is a certain amount of survivalism in the political culture, if you can call it that, in Somalia. But that's just something I want to elaborate on just to illustrate why Al-Shabaab is not just a terrorist group. It's uh, really more of a tribal thing. You know, it's uh, a couple of tribal groups that were not able to be incorporated into the government that are continuing to fight against it uh, for their own benefit and perhaps also some ideological goals. When you said terrorists, but there's more to it, I just thought of the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars. <laughs> because technically in that scenario, the Empire is the ruling faction. They have the stable government that commands authority in regions and the rebels are fucking shit up blowing things up they're technically the good guys in the overall story mm -hmm. for most viewers but yes if they're not in a position where they have the monopoly on violence and they leverage violence that's sort of the category where you're not doing a direct frontal military engagement in the same way because you don't have that same level of military power yeah yeah that's that's kind of what it comes down to in Somalia. You know, I'm sure Al-Shabaab would like to compete more on an even keel with some of their uh, opponents there, but that's not really going to happen. So terrorism is kind of the default as a result in some cases, but that doesn't really justify what they do. You know, they've definitely engaged in shady, you know, not everybody they kill is uh, guilty per se. It's not like they just target policemen, soldiers, etc. not to justify that, but technically those are military targets. You know, some of the people they kill are, you know, civilians, children, etc. So uh, obviously that's <laughs> ethically a problem, to put it mildly. But uh, ethics of terrorism aside, that's obviously a whole conversation in and of itself. Uh, yeah, you know, there, Somalia, beyond just terrorism and counterterrorism, has its own set of politics. And uh, that's just part of what I wanted to illustrate there, talking about Al-Shabaab and... Uh, one of their, well, their leader, you know, their main leader was assassinated. I think partly in retaliation to some deaths of U.S. servicemen, uh, kind of like with uh, the U.S. 
support provided to countries in West Africa. The U.S. has been providing military support to uh, Somalia, well, the UN-appointed government in Somalia anyway, as well as to Kenya and Ethiopia, which are two countries that are heavily involved in Somali affairs. So that's another area of operations for them. And there was a couple U.S. servicemen, special forces, uh, who were killed, I think, during some kind of raid or some such in uh, Somalia. No, actually, it might have been the raid in Kenya. Actually, I don't know if we ever talked about that, but there was a U.S. airbase or an airbase hosting U.S. forces, let's say, that uh, was attacked by Somali terrorists and that they actually managed to get through the wire and uh, blow up some aircraft, kill some U.S. personnel. So it might be that the assassination of the Al-Shabaab leader here is partly the retaliation for that. But regardless, that's some news from East Africa anyway. Uh, Southern Africa, their problem is drought. That's been a big deal there. And it's becoming increasingly so. That has to do with uh, weather patterns. It hasn't been raining enough, you know, drought. Very definition of a drought, pretty much. Uh, some of that is due to climate change, most likely. But uh, regardless, there's going to be food shortages probably pretty soon in a lot of countries in the southern part of Africa, specifically uh Zambia, Malawi, and Zimbabwe. And uh, political instability in some of those places probably isn't helping. Malawi had a uh, disputed election recently. And I think their Supreme Court, or their equivalent of the Supreme Court, ruled that the election be overturned and rerun uh, on account of some election irregularities. So that's probably not helping the government's response. <clears throat> also, uh, the U.S. pres resumed rather the united states resumed sanctions on zimbabwe due to a uh, lack of progress on human rights uh, robert mugabe who had been the longtime dictator in zimbabwe uh, was ousted by the military in a coup uh, not every not, not very many countries recognized it officially as a military coup for legal reasons but in effect that's exactly what it was and there was some hope that maybe the human rights and situation and the economies uh, would improve in zimbabwe uh, with the new government in power, but it hasn't, unfortunately, that hasn't really happened. And as a result, uh, the United States government has placed uh, sanctions that it had lifted after the overthrow of Mugabe back onto Zimbabwe. So not quite back to square one. I think things have improved a bit for Zimbabwe, but the new leadership doesn't seem particularly interested in taking the necessary steps to stabilize the economy and uh, restore some semblance of rule of law. Uh, after the big breakdowns under Robert Mugabe. And if you live in the Union of South Africa, uh, you probably have heard about this. There's been some drama about electric utilities. This is kind of old news, I think. This has been happening for a while, but uh, there's a number of publicly owned, well, I guess calling them public utilities implies that they're publicly owned, but uh, there's a lot of publicly owned electric companies that are struggling to maintain, to produce enough electricity uh, for the country. And that has to do with underinvestment, uh, which itself has to do with massive endemic corruption in the uh, previous long-running Zuma administration in South Africa, which was known for its corruption. And uh, the diversion of funds from the public utility and the misuse of funds uh, in the public utility resulted in a lack of investment that has now become painfully apparent as it struggles to maintain sufficient supply, supplies to meet the needs of the South African economy. So that's just compounding a general economic downturn that's been happening because of a downturn in prices of commodities, downturn in international trade, uh, etc. So lots of pressure on the South African government, lots of pressure on, uh, I think his name is Cyril Razum, Ramas, oof, 
I don't think I can quite remember it off the top of my head. He had been the ministry or minister of finance, I think, in the Zuma administration, but he had been a critic of Zuma. And uh, the party basically threw Zuma out. It was kind of an intra-party, an intra-party coup. And uh, Ram- Ramaphonza, gosh, it's like on the tip of my tongue. The minister of finance was the big beneficiary of that, and he became the new prime minister. And uh, international markets were excited because they were hoping that he would fix the economy, that he would implement economic reforms. But he hasn't really been able to do that sufficiently uh, to turn around South Africa's economy or to appease markets. So unfortunately, economic conditions are deteriorating in South Africa as a result. So let's see, that's South Africa, uh, Great Lakes region in Africa. Uh, Tanzania has been in the news a bit over the past couple months. There was somebody who uh, complained about the poor condition of the roads at a national park in Tanzania as a Tanzanian citizen. And that person was uh, threatened with arrest for posting about it on social media. It seems that the local officials and uh, the Tanzanian government are not too gung-ho about criticism. And uh, they justified their threats by saying that this person was tarnishing the government's name and reputation and that he was uh, tarnishing the reputation of Tanzania as a whole internationally. So it seems criticism is not particularly welcomed by the Tanzanian government, uh, which is unfortunate. Tanzania has not been great about democracy, but it's hardly been one of the worst. It had been okay over time. It had problems with the corruption, but ever since, uh, what's his name? The current president, I want to say Magufuli. And it's probably mispronouncing it, even if I'm getting the spelling right. But uh, the current president came into power and Everybody, a lot of people really liked him because he seemed to be very honest, or at least relatively honest. And he seemed to be uh, dedicated to professionalizing public service and to trying to kind of bring order to the chaos of Tanzanian political culture. And he has still done that, but he's also taken on a very paternalistic style of politics. You know, he doesn't really tolerate much criticism and he tends to uh, boss people around a bit. You know, he seems to have a domineering attitude towards the citizenry. And this is just one manifestation of that. I mean, there was also at a local level, I think last year, there was an example of a a local official who announced that he would uh, have police or maybe even just dedicated units go out and try to find gay people to arrest. Uh, You know, Africa is a very traditional place, culturally speaking. And so LGBT rights are uh, not where they could be, suffice to say. And uh, there was some stir on social media on account of that announcement. I don't think it ever actually happened. I think that was just some uh, grandstanding by a local official, but uh, the national government didn't really clamp down on it either. Now, that said, I don't want to paint Tanzania in too bad a light. You know, the Great Lakes region in Africa in general is one of the better performing regions economically and to a degree socially in Africa. So, you know, it's been doing relatively well, but politically speaking, there's uh, some room for improvement. Let's put it like that. Also, some of those locusts from East Africa are starting to spread to the Great Lakes region. So that could be something we're reading about pretty soon. If that does become more and more of a problem there, it seems the problem is proliferating. On that note, where are they getting the ducks from? China. They actually were talking about importing them from China. Hmm. China has quite a few ducks. In fact, there are... There are people who raise ducks professionally. You, know, you can even see them on the roads sometimes in the rural areas. And the whole 
great flocks, I guess I'm supposed to call them, great flocks of uh, ducks. I think they have their wings clipped, so they don't really fly. They just walk. But uh, they all walk together and they're all fed together. And uh, you can't actually hurt like them. chickens, kind of? Yeah, kind of like chickens. But probably even easier to deal with uh, than chickens, since chickens can be a little temperamental. <laughs> Suffice to say, I've never seen people herd chickens like I've seen ducks herded. You know, you can probably even do a Google image search for herding ducks, and it might give you something. Let me see. Herding ducks. Yeah, there's some decent imagery there. It's not uncommon. So they're again kind of like what I was saying before. It was they're just easy to manage as a kind of pack animal. So in that sense, they're uh, an ideal tool in terms of dealing with something like a locust swarm or what have you. <clears throat> oh, that's right. I had a whole long thing about Angola. Yeah, this has to do with Central Africa, which is the last region on my list here. Uh, there's still in Democratic Republic of the Congo, there's, there's still an Ebola outbreak. I don't know if you remember this, Nero, but maybe a year or a year and a half ago, I talked briefly about how there was a uh, Ebola outbreak, uh, not just in DR Congo, but actually in one of the cities in the interior of the country, like a medium-sized city, and that uh, public health officials were really worried that uh, they might not be able to contain it. As it happens, they have been able to contain it, but the outbreak is actually still happening. They haven't been able to stop it. And uh, that's been an ongoing problem there for the past year and a half. And that kind of illustrates how news stories can kind of slip under the radar after time. I think uh, Ebola normally gets a lot of headlines, but because this one's just kind of been stuck in the same place for the past year, it's uh, kind of fallen out of the news. <clears throat> Let's see. There's also ongoing political violence in Cameroon that has to do with the uh, French-speaking elites in the government trying to restrict the uh, rights and opportunities of English-speaking peoples in the north of the country. That's kind of a complicated issue, but that has to do with the fact that uh, the northwestern provinces of Cameroon used to be a part of uh, Nigeria, I think it was. Some of them were anyway. And there was a referendum held, I think, at independence, at Nigeria's independence or Cameroon's independence. I don't quite remember which it was. Uh, but there was a referendum held uh, for these border areas since the ethnic groups that lived in the border areas of Nigeria were the same as those that lived in Cameroon. And they did vote to join Cameroon. But because they'd been part of Nigeria, they had grown up in a uh, political system that was English-speaking and that taught English. Whereas Cameroon had been originally German way back in the day, but after World War One, it was a French province, French territory. And so the elites there all spoke French. So there was some question of how to integrate some of these uh, English-speaking peoples into what had been a French-speaking polity. Obviously, there's also native languages, but the politics of the elites, you know, in other words, the politics of academia, the government, the economy, etc., uh, those were generally the languages of colonial countries like uh, the English or the French. So the French-speaking elite in Cameroon tried to make room for the English speakers uh, in the northwest of the country. And for a while that worked, but over the past decade or so, there's been more restrictions. There's been uh, more restrictions on the opportunities available in government for people who only speak English, but not French. And that aggravated the people in the northwest of the country. And in turn, there was a growing, uh, there has been growing unrest that eventually turned into a general low intensity conflict, I guess is what you would call it. Not quite a broad based rebellion per se, but attacks on government forces, counterinsurgency operations by the government, 
uh, low-level violence against civilians seen as supporting the government, etc. You know, the usual low-intensity conflict fare. And that's been an ongoing problem for the past couple years or so. So you still hear occasionally about violence there. One of the interesting things that happened there that I can remember off the top of my head uh, was problems with education. One of the things that the rebels in the English-speaking provinces wanted was for people to stop attending school. You know, they wanted there to be like a general strike, a general stoppage and participation of government institutions, and that included shutting down the schools. But obviously, a lot of people were hesitant to stop sending their children to school. You know, they want them to be educated. They want them to have opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And when a lot of people refused to stop sending their kids to school, the rebels started attacking schools. And uh, that kind of forced the issue. So a number of schools did shut down after that for obvious security reasons. But uh, that was an interesting example of a uh, rebel group kind of sacrificing some of their legitimate public support uh, in the name of, uh, quote unquote, solidarity, you know, trying to force solidarity. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> it's probably engendering a lot more uh, bad blood than it is support among the general population. But yeah, uh, I think rebellion is always going to be messy, but you should still try to do it in the best way that you can. Because if you if you win, but you did it in a nasty way, then the people are going to hate you and then someone's going to rebel against you. Yeah, yeah. But it also makes winning in the first place more difficult since you need popular support. Uh, you know, partly in terms of funding, you know, people give you money, give you supplies, give you information, but also more informally, you know, people have the power to direct the government to you. If they know you're operating in an area, they can tip off the government. Uh, but if they support you, then they can just forego that. They can just be like, I could inform you, inform on you to the government, but I won't, because in general, I kind of lean more towards you. But if you aggravate people, then you don't really get that kind of informal, indirect support, and that can just undermine your cause. So attacking schools is probably not the smartest move they can make. I don't think that was really a winner. Uh, but at the same time, the government still hasn't been able to leverage that into substantive progress in suppressing the rebellion. So I guess it didn't hurt them too much. Uh, regardless, that's uh, the news that's been happening in Central Africa. But there's also been some action in Angola. And uh, that's the one that I have a whole bunch of notes here for, because I thought this was a really interesting case study. Uh, so Angola had been run since independence by one party, and that party was dominated by one guy. So in effect, it was a one-guy dictatorship. I don't I don't quite remember his name. I think his last name was Del Santos, uh, Portuguese-sounding name for a Portuguese colony. You know, again, a lot of Portuguese elites, well, rather, again, a lot of African elites and countries have names and cultural affinities for uh, the cultures of their colonizers. So that's not unusual. Uh, anyway, this guy, Del Santos, he had been the de facto dictator of Angola for a number of decades. But just recently, over the past year and change, he had actually agreed to step down. Uh, I think he just wanted to retire or some such. But it doesn't seem as though he managed the retirement very well, uh, because now uh, his successor is coming after him. He's kind of trying to make a point of fighting corruption, quote unquote, uh, by pointing out all the examples of corruption by Del Santos, and in particular, his daughter, uh, whom acted as his avatar within government. And was able to apparently uh, accumulate quite the fortune based off of embezzling public funds. So this is a battle that's currently being fought within Angola. You know, the new political elites are trying to attack the old political elites and throw them out. That's partly a case study and why it's important if you are a dictator. You know, for those of you who are aspiring dictators, keep this in mind. Uh, your retirement is going to be a very delicate procedure. 
you need to make sure that when you give up power or step down, assuming you do eventually do that, uh, that you don't give power to somebody who's going to stab you in the back once he's in the driver's seat. Uh, the alternative is to just stay in power forever, but that's just going to get harder as you get older, assuming you don't die in office. That could itself represent a pretty significant problem. <clears throat> so aspiring dictators take note. Uh, this guy apparently did not manage his retirement very well, and as a result, he's having to f fight a uh, post-retirement political battle with his successors. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about. One of the things that the new government is doing is releasing a bunch of information about all the corruption that was engaged in uh, by Del Santos's daughter. And uh, it's a pretty rare look, in so much as it's true. Obviously, they have an incentive to exaggerate the wrongdoing here. So, you know, uh, some of this may not be entirely accurate. But that said, I still feel like this is worth taking a look at because it really gives you an example of the kinds of corruption uh, that corrupt political actors engage in in corrupt political cultures. So it's an interesting case study in that sense that I thought uh, might be fun and interesting for people to kind of hear. So let's see, this is an older one. So let me go back here. Here we go. <clears throat> so I'm just going to list here specific examples of what was done. And uh, just to give you, and briefly describe them to give you an idea. And there's a couple examples here, so it might take a while, but I think we're okay on time. Let me check real quick. Yeah, one hour 43. Yeah, an hour 43. Let's see. Okay. So are you okay with this, Neuro? We can skip this if you think it's not worthwhile. Let's go, dude. Okay. <clears throat> Just want to check. So I know this is a little bit outside our wheelhouse where we've been shifting more towards the conversational than uh, question-based for the past little bit. So I just want to kind of verify that the shift is still okay. Yeah, we've had questions. Yeah. And for those of you who maybe do have questions, you know, do who do we have anybody handling questions? Yes, fuzzy cord. Fuzzy cord. Okay. If you do have questions, you know, feel free to feel free to ask, and I'll answer to the best of my ability uh, as much as I can. So tag fuzzy cord, and you know, ask away, and we can kind of talk about it. And that used to be the main thing we did on here, but recently we've been shifting more towards uh, this style that you've kind of been seeing today. So let's see. So to get back to Angola here, um, so Isabel dos Santos, uh, she is the daughter of the former president, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, who ruled the country from 1979 to 2017. So there's been a recent power struggle after the father stepped down and saw her removed and documents leaked implicating her in uh, various corruption scandals. So let's see. One of the things that happened while her father was still in power is that she was put in charge of the state oil company. Uh, which was called Sonangol. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. And for those of you not familiar with Angola, Angola is a major oil producer. I don't remember if it's a member of OPEC. I think it is. Uh, but I could be wrong. Not every major oil producer is a member of OPEC, you know, Russia being a case in point. Now, we actually might talk a bit about that later because Russia has been in the news. Uh, but anyway, Angola is a major oil producer and oil is a major source of revenue, you know, most likely the source of revenue for the government. But in turn, that makes the state oil company uh, very attractive if you're looking to embezzle funds. So uh, that seems to be the case here. Her father put her in charge of Sonangol, the state oil company. And one of the corrupt things that she did, allegedly, you know, again, there's a power struggle going on. So make of this what you will. But the allegation is that she approved the sale of a Sonangol asset in Portugal, uh, an, an energy company called Galp, 
uh, to a firm that she personally owned. Uh, this happened in 2006, apparently. <clears throat> so this is an asset that the state oil company had bought in Portugal, an energy company. And she, as leader of, well, not leader, I should say, but as head of the state oil company, uh, she directs the state oil company to sell the asset uh, to a company, to another company that she owns. So she only had to pay 15% of the price of the uh, estimated value of this asset, of the energy company in question, up front. Uh, the rest was covered by an 11-year low interest rate loan that she got from Sonangol, which again is the state oil company that she's heading. So she effectively has given herself an 11-year low interest rate loan from the state company that she's leading, and in turn, giving it to another company that she owns. So clear conflict of interest. That's going to be something you're going to see a lot of here in the next little bit. So in 2017, her firm offered to pay back the loan, but without paying any of the interest on the loan. It was already a low interest loan, uh, but now it's going to become a no interest loan. So the state oil company agrees to these terms. Again, she's the head of both firms, so she can kind of do this. Uh, and in turn, Sonengol, the state oil company, missed out on about $9 million in interest payments. Uh, incidentally, this happened not long before the uh, power struggle broke out. And so Dos Santos was actually removed from her position as head of uh, the state oil company six days after this happened, uh, whereupon the money was returned to her firm. <laughs> So the legal defense uh, that she's presenting here, I'm going to talk a little bit about the legal defenses here because this is, again, allegations. Uh, the legal defense that she's making uh, is that all contracts were legal and benefited Sonangol, uh, her words. Her lawyers are saying that the repayment offer in 2017 covered, covered what Sonangol had, uh, covered what the firm had offered to pay back. Hang on, let me read this. The repayment offer in 2017 covered what Sonangol had indicated was owed. So that's lawyer speak for saying that the state oil company uh, had agreed that this covered the loan that they had given. That is to say the payment that was received. Again, that's the payment that she authorized for herself to be interest free. So that's uh, a little finagling by the lawyers there. So let's see. So this is one example of corruption, approving a low interest rate loan so that you can buy an asset from the state company that you're running. So here's another example. Uh, just before she approved payment of 50, oh, sorry. Uh, just before she left, you know, after she'd been removed, she approved the payment of 50 invoices worth $58 million to a Dubai consultant, consultancy firm. Now, this consultancy firm just happened to be run by her business manager and was owned by a personal friend of hers. So you can see, again, the conflict of interest here. Uh, the legal justification by the consultancy was that the invoices were for work that had already been carried out by other consultancy companies it had hired. So it basically subcontracted out uh, to other consulting companies and that they felt they needed to be compensated for that and had apparently they had not been already. So make of that what you will, that, you know, that could well be uh, a lie, as it were, but this is nominally the defense. Her lawyers are saying that uh, she had not authorized payments after she had been dismissed from Son and Goal. So basically saying she's not the one who authorized payments, the 50, uh, she's not the one who authorized payment to the 50 invoices. <clears throat> she says, quote, all invoices were paid in relation to services contracted and agreed between the two parties under a contract that was approved with the full knowledge and approval of the Son and Goal board of directors. Uh, again, saying that everybody, everything was cleared technically. But again, the allegation there is that she leaves, just as she's about to leave, she directs the state, own, state oil company that she's directing 
uh, to dump a bunch of money on a business that she has a clear conflict of interest with. So two examples here of corruption in the form uh, of her management of the state oil company. So getting away from the state oil company, there's also a state diamond company in Angola called um, Sodium, apparently. And uh, allegedly, this company, again, the state diamond company, helped her husband, that is the, the husband of the daughter uh, of the dictator. Uh, her husband is a guy named Sindika Dokolu, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, allegedly, the state diamond company helped him purchase a Swiss luxury jeweler named uh, De Grisognono. I'm butchering the pronunciation of that, I know. Uh, I think that's Italian, it looks like. Uh, but a Swiss luxury jeweler, in any case, a company to that effect. So this was originally supposed to be a 50-50 venture between uh, Del Santos's husband and the State Diamond Company. But as it happened, uh, Sodium, again, the State Diamond Company, ended up putting up $79 million, uh, but Docolo uh, only ended up putting up $4 million. And Sodium actually paid for that $4 million because uh, they had paid him $5 million, uh, that is to say, a $5 million fee for brokering the deal in the first place. So pretty sweetheart deal there for him. He doesn't, it's supposed to be 50-50 deal, but he doesn't have to actually hold up his 50 and what little he does pay actually comes out of the pocket of the guy who's paying the other 50. So uh, furthermore, Sodium paid its share by borrowing a loan from a bank largely owned by the Dos Santos family. Big surprise. Now, here's the kicker. The loan was actually guaranteed by Del Santos's father, again, the former dictator, by presidential decree. So you can see how finance differs greatly depending on who's running the bank. Uh, when they were borrowing from the firm, uh, well, rather, uh, before, uh, the firm ended up having not to have to pay interest on the loan. But here, when the bank is owned by the Del Santoses, uh, now they're having to, now they're getting a presidential decree enforcing payment, uh, you know, guaranteeing that loan that's being made. So again, relatively clear-cut corruption. I don't want to say explicitly clear-cut because again, allegations, but that's uh, pretty damning. So the legal defense for this one is that uh, he later on invested $115 million. The implication being that he ended up later on uh, paying for the 50-50 share that he said he would pay. So let's see, moving on then, uh, the president at the time gave uh, DeLoco, uh, that is, again, his daughter's husband, uh, his son-in-law, the right to buy some of Angola's raw diamonds. And uh, you know, allegedly, uh, the son-in-law bought those diamonds below market value and then sold them at a profit with perhaps as much as a billion dollars being lost uh, to the state in turn. Uh, the legal defense for this one is that his company paid above the market rate uh, for the raw diamonds, which seems kind of unlikely. Why well, buy them above market rate? I guess maybe he found a way to sell them even at an even higher price than that, but I'm a little dubious. Regardless, that's the allegation. So that's a pretty simple one. Uh, let's see. The next one has to do with property. Allegedly, uh, the daughter of the dictator, Isabel del Santos, purchased a square kilometer of prime beachfront territory, beachfront uh, property, in the capital of Luanda uh, from the government for a small upfront fee in 2017. And apparently, allegedly, she had the help of presidential decrees signed by her father uh, facilitating that land sale. 
sale. Uh, the land was valued about $96 million, but she only had to pay 5% of that uh, in exchange for agreeing to invest the rest in quote unquote development. So her defense on this one is that uh, her companies were never actually paid because the development was canceled. Make of that what you will, but that still doesn't really justify the initial sale at such a low value. Uh, let's see, next one, Angola's main telecoms firm, Unitel, uh, gave a loan of $350 million to a firm owned by Del Santos. Pretty clear cut there. Uh, the problem is that she owned 25% stake in Unitel and herself approved Unitel's loan to her firm. So this is, again, conflict of interest where she is uh, not owning it in this case, but she has a clear share and uh, then has an incentive then to clear a loan for herself uh, to her own for herself so that her other business can uh, benefit. So Dos Santos's defense here is that the loan had both director's approval and shareholder approval and benefited the firm. You know, debatable. Uh, her lawyer's defense is that the loans protected Unitel from currency fluctuations. That may have been the nominal justification in the first place for the deal. But that still doesn't really justify the initial conflict of interest, which is pretty clear cut there. So some closing notes here. All of this is pretty blatant. Uh, but that also might suggest some weakness in the patronage network of the dictator in question. Uh, it might explain why his successors were so readily so readily turned on him. Uh, you know, if you look at other uh, dictatorships or authoritarian political systems around the world, generally leaders who embezzle money or engage in corruption like this are smarter about how they move money around. Uh, generally, there's shell firms, shell corporations. Uh, offshore accounts, and generally there's multiple iterations of that where one shell company sends money to an offshore account and then they invest in another offshore company and then another shell company and then invest that back into an off offshore account and then so forth, so on and so forth in order to make it very difficult uh, to retrace where the money was originally coming from. It doesn't really seem like Del Santos's uh, patronage network was doing that. It kind of seems like they were pretty uh, explicitly engaging in corruption themselves and then uh, benefiting from it. So that may have made them more vulnerable to this kind of backstabbing that they've eventually been subjected to. Uh, it might also just be that they were uh, dumb. <laughs> there's, there's such a thing as badly managing a patronage network, and it may just be that uh, beyond being too obvious with their corruption, it may just be that they were not paying off the right people enough uh, to kind of satiate them and uh, make them not want to turn on the Del Santoses once the Del Santoses were out of power. So that could also be the problem. It may just be that they uh, overestimated their ability to avoid uh, this kind of fate that they're suffering right now. So that's all I had for Angola, but I, hopefully that just illustrates, I know it's a little garble and it's not the presentation wasn't the best, but hopefully that just gives you a snapshot of the kind of corruption that uh, corrupt political actors can engage in. Uh, conflicts of interest are kind of the norm there. And uh, just the ways that they kind of move money around and uh, approve loans for themselves and, you know, do that kind of thing. It's an interesting look at the inside look at that, which has made a... I think they have a good shot if they get nominated for the Corruption Awards this year <laughs> to get first place. There you this go. This is pretty involved. There, saying there are a lot of layers to this. <clears throat> yeah, there's a, there's a lot there that you can engage in if you want to be creative. You know, I mean... When it comes to government, especially a government that has a lot of resources, like an oil wealthy government, uh, or even in a developed country, uh, there's the more resources you have to work with, the more there is to steal. Uh, but you can't just explicitly steal it. You need to have at least some cover. You know, even the Del Santos has had the nominal justifications. So 
if you want to be creative, yeah, there's lots of ways that you can take money. And if, it's even easier when you don't have rule of law. You know, Angola is technically a revolutionary government. You know, the uh, revolutionary forces that fought against the Portuguese in the 70s uh, took power as a revolutionary force and eventually suppressed uh, rivals in a very long, brutal civil war. And uh, as a result today, uh, there's not really a lot of checks and balances. You know, that revolutionary party is still technically in power, but they never really developed the kinds of institutional checks and balances that other governments that are better designed had. You know, it's very much a kind of very much emerged. The current government emerged from uh, revolutionary emergency necessities uh, rather than from uh, sort of reasoned, logical, long thought out and pre-planned design. You know, some governments uh, focused a lot more on what their post-independence government would be look would look like with the help of their colonial masters, like with uh, a lot of British colonies or some French colonies. But in the case of the Portuguese, they fought long civil wars to try to maintain their colonies. And so there wasn't really that dialogue. So governments in places like, well, specifically governments and governance in Angola and Mozambique have more of a revolutionary flavor, uh, but unfortunately tend to be a little more dysfunctional as a result. So in cases like that, where you don't have checks and balances and uh, strong institutions, where rule of law is suspect, it's a lot easier for people uh, to predate, you know, to abuse uh, their power within government, uh, to build patronage networks out of government resources and to maintain their own power for extended periods of time. For your extensive and broad-based <clears throat> corruption, all of these pieces of evidence set against you, you have been henceforth and hereafter sentenced to browse the web without an ad blocker. <laughs> to the end of days no well that's uh you never know i don't know what they're going to punish the del santos's with probably nothing that draconian (laughs) (laughs) Uh, maybe just jail time yeah it's a little bit barbaric not having a pop-up blocker yeah so hopefully that's uh hopefully that's a sufficient african update for you yeah, that was pretty comprehensive in terms of hitting the different regions. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you said there was something in Russia, and we do have the one question from Whisker yet. Oh, cool. Let me do Russia real quick, because I think that's an important one, Okay. relatively speaking. I think it's near the end of my notes. I've still got a bat- backlog here. I really should just get the podcast going so that I can start using some of this. I think some of it would be good episode fodder. just haven't quite gotten around to it yet. I'm still trying to justify... <laughs> having a Patreon account. You know, I want to I want to have tiers, right, for people who want to do the Patreon thing, but I'm trying to figure out what kind of goodies I can give to people who are at the upper end, and I don't really have much. Like, I was thinking of making maps, like Wiki maps, Google Earth maps, just having that as something I could send to people, and then maybe an article, like a, I don't know, an article I could send out for every episode I release. I could give that, but I don't know how interesting that would actually be, and I don't even know if I could do it well. So here you go, dude. I got you. Different kinds of things that you can put on your Patreon. Early release, exclusive content for certain tiers if you wanted to do that. You can also have polls. That's one of the best ways to use a platform and one of the primary uses for me now is say someone at a $2 tier on your Patreon can now vote for what region they want to hear about next because sometimes you ask me about that. You could give that to the community to decide, well, we want to hear about what's happening in Southeast Asia. So then 
you have some direction for the content you want to go get. Hmm. And you don't need to have more than one tier per se. You could just put up your Patreon, start it up with $1. And that's just like a thanks for supporting me and what I do. And you post all your updates there. A lot of people aren't super picky about they need to have a shiny piece of content immediately for their pledge. Yeah. That's nice, but it's not really necessary. Oh. Well, thank you for the feedback. That's actually very useful. Yeah, I would start with the skeleton, basically, where you don't have a complete and impressive Patreon page where you have eight different tiers and lots of different rewards because that's that's more of like a, a finished product Patreon <clears throat> page. Yeah. Just getting the $1 tier started where the page is active and people can go find you because every time you did an Agent Smith segment, we could add that to the who is it command so they can link directly there. And if you catch a new patron here or there, I mean, it's growing over time. Yeah, gotcha. Oh, that's a good idea. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm not sure how I got on. Oh, Russia, right, Russia. Okay, so as you know, the global economy has not been responding great to the global pandemic. Uh, so as a result, it's expected that there's going to be less production, uh, less employment, less demand, etc. Now, correspondent with that, commodity prices have been falling, including oil prices. And that puts the squeeze on a lot of oil producing countries and economies. Now, OPEC uh, is a collection of countries that are major oil producers. And uh, the de facto leader of OPEC is Saudi Arabia, since they have uh, the greatest production at the lowest cost of production. Now, one of the things that's been happening over the past couple of years is that uh, the Saudis in particular, as well as by extension OPEC, have actually been cooperating with Russia on setting oil production. <clears throat> oil production has a big impact on uh, oil prices. So if they want to lower oil prices, they can cut production. And if they want to, and if they want to, no, wait, other way around, if they want to raise oil prices, they can agree to cut production. And if they want to lower oil prices, they can agree to increase it. Now, with oil prices falling, there's a desire on the part of oil producers to coordinate production cuts in order to try to maintain upward pressure on the price. It's still going to fall. Uh, but there's a temptation if you're an oil producer to respond to uh, falls in the oil price by producing more oil to try to make up the shortfall in revenue. Now, if everybody does that, then there's going to be a price war and the price is just going to collapse utterly. And no oil producer wants that to happen, especially in OPEC. So uh, OPEC, again, de facto led by Saudi Arabia and the Russians have been trying to coordinate over the past couple of years. And with the oil prices now falling because of the uh, global pandemic, there was a desire to agree to production cuts. And so there was actually a meeting that's been, that was held and probably a series of meetings to try to negotiate that. But here's the problem that they encountered. Um, the Russians now and actually over the past couple of years of the relationship have been very reluctant uh, to agree to production cuts. You know, what few cuts they've been uh, that they've been agreeing to have generally been disproportionately borne by the Saudis. You know, they've been cutting a lot more and the Saudis don't really like that. But for various reasons, they felt compelled to try to agree to that. Part of that was the geopolitical situation in the Middle East. Uh, there was a, you know, they had the Syria conflict ongoing, which the Saudis were partly involved with. So probably as part of desire to get the Russians on board there, uh, they were willing to play ball, so to speak as well as a general sense that the Russians were players in the region generally. 
Uh, also, the fact that the Russians are major oil producers in their own right. So just getting them on board is important. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be hard for the Russians to undermine OPEC attempts to cut production by themselves, you know, try to take advantage and grab market share. So for those reasons, the Saudis were generally willing to say, okay, we'll cut more uh, just so long as you will cut some. But now with the prices falling as much as they are, the Saudis apparently came out very strongly and demanded that the Russians cut a lot. It was apparently a very bold opening demand from them that the Russians really start participating in production cuts. Now, the Russians, for their part, are already getting squeezed economically and have been for years by sanctions ever since the whole Crimea, Crimea imbroglio. And uh, that's in addition to the general economic downturn because of the global pandemic and uh, Russia's general economic malaise on account of all the corruption there in general, lots of barriers and whatnot to entering the market and running a profitable company. There are some, it's not as though it's impossible, but it's relatively more difficult in Russia than in other markets. So just because of the generally difficult economic situation that Russia is in, the Russia was the Russian government was not that interested in uh, production cuts to one of their sole sources of significant revenue uh, remaining. And so the result of this meeting between OPEC and Russia resulted in an impasse. They actually were not able to agree on production cuts. And since that time, the Saudis have apparently come out and said that they've given up, basically, that they're going to increase production in order to try to maintain market share, in order to try to maintain uh, more revenue, uh, more of their revenue stream from oil production. Now, let me check this. Yeah, they've announced that they're going to not only have the Saudis since announced that they're going to increase production, uh, they've also said that they're going to give a discount to buyers. So an a little extra sting there for the Russians, basically. So uh, it's not entirely clear why the Russians rejected the deal. It may just be that the state really did not want to give up the revenue that they would have to in order to facilitate a production cut like that. Uh, There's also some speculation it may have had to do with the desire to uh, force prices down to pressure U.S. fracking firms. Obviously, the U.S. produces a lot of oil now because of fracking. Uh, But the uh, break-even price for fracking companies is relatively higher than for places like uh, Saudi producers or Russian producers, although that's uh, not entirely the full story. I'll get to that in a minute, though. Uh, But basically, there's a desire to pressure those companies, since those companies' production serves as a downward pressure on oil prices, generally. So it seems like, uh, well, the result was that oil prices fell even further because of this, uh, not only the failure to agree to deal, but even worse, uh, the announcement by the Saudis that they're going to increase production and give a discount. So that seems like a a pretty clear signal that a price war is coming if it isn't happening already, and that oil is going to tank in price. Uh, It's going to put a lot of financial pressure on the Saudis and the Russians, since they derive a lot of revenue from uh, oil. possibly with implications for their foreign policies and domestic policies. In Russia's case, that's going to be social spending that the government uses to try to maintain their legitimacy. You know, pensions in particular are a sensitive subject in Russia. Uh, It could also mean that Russia has to draw down a little bit of its military adventure in Syria and the Ukraine. Um, Probably won't. They'll probably find the money for that, but that's going to put the squeeze even more on other parts of uh, the Russian government and probably also on Russian Uh, patronage networks, that is to say the political networks in Russia through which the elites maintain power. There could be some strain there showing in the near future. Uh, For the the Saudis' part, uh, they have a war in Yemen that's been expensive, so that they might have to pull back from that a bit. 
uh, it might exacerbate, well, maybe not exacerbate, but uh, it may encourage further the Saudi push for talks with Iran, you know, ever since the uh, Iranian slash Houthi attack on the Saudi refinery late last year, the Saudis have been a lot more amenable to talks with Iran. So this could accelerate that uh, since the Saudis don't have the same as many resources, are not going to have as many resources after the collapse of the price of oil uh, than they had before. And uh, let me see here. Oh, and there's also this massive economic restructuring program that uh, the Saudi leader, Mohammed bin Salman, has been trying to push. He's been kind of trying to normalize the Saudi economy, trying to shift the economy away from just being oil-based. You know, he wants there to be more innovation, entrepreneurship, foreign investment, etc. And it's been kind of a mixed bag thus far. And it's been very expensive because it requires, uh, or at least as he's been implementing it anyway, it's required a lot of public investment. And it may be that that program has to be rolled back now since there's going to be less revenue to work with. We talked about that in the context of Texas. Yeah. Texas used to be primarily making money from oil and it had to diversify its economy. Yeah. Texas is a successful example of diversification away from an oil dependent economy. It was dependent on oil for most of its history. And in the 1980s, the price of oil just collapsed utterly. Uh, and as a result, Texas economy just was hammered. And there was a strong push by Texas government to uh, diversify and cultivate other economic activities. And a couple of decades later, that's been very successful. You know, we have things like uh, the Space Center down in Houston. We've got the Silicon Prairie, which is a big tech area up here in Dallas. Uh, San Antonio has a lot more tourism than it used to be. It also, it also has military bases, but it's kind of always had those. But yeah, it's been a pretty successful effort. So it's a good model for other uh, economies and societies that are looking to make that shift. But Saudi, the Saudis are very much trying to emulate that to some degree, although I don't think they're doing it in nearly the same way. I think they're doing it in a much more state-directed way, and I don't know how much that's going to work. But regardless, they may have to pare down that effort now that they have less resources to work with. Uh, another implication uh, of this, specifically an implication of the failure of the Saudis to uh, make an agreement with the Russians, it kind of brings into doubt the veracity of this uh, Saudi-Russian alliance, which uh, some people in the market has have been perceiving. You know, there was a sense that maybe the Saudis were starting to align a little more with the Russians because it kind of made sense that they were both oil producers to maybe coordinate. But it seems that may have been a bit of a premature perception. You know, It seems like there are still pretty significant differences between them in terms of foreign policy objectives, in terms of uh, oil price objectives, etc., uh, to the point that uh, this agreement was not able to happen. So that brings into doubt the veracity of that and kind of suggests that maybe the Saudis are going to, are still relatively close to the United States or are more likely to try to go it alone in future rather than necessarily align with Russia specifically. So let's see. Uh, now, this is an important point here. This could just be a temporary break. It may be that this is a, an, an example of brinksmanship. You know, neither Russia nor Saudi Arabia wants low oil prices. Uh, so this may be just a negotiating tactic on the part of both parties where they're both pretending uh, to tolerate low prices in order to try to force the other to agree to larger production cuts. Now, that could end tomorrow. You know, they could just come back to the table and agree to production cuts that uh, see the price of oil go back up. Or alternatively, this could turn into a protracted battle that lacks that lasts for a number of months before some kind of agreement is made, 
or no agreement is ever made. It may be that there's been a complete collapse in talks. Uh, so that's still it's still possible that this could be a collapse in bilateral relations or at least bilateral cooperation on oil prices. But don't rule out the possibility of a future agreement in the short to medium term. That's still technically possible uh, if one or the other government really wants it. So that's an important point because that's uh, the collapse in oil prices around the world, which is going to be facilitated and exacerbated specifically by this issue between the Russians and the Saudis. That's going to really hammer a lot of oil, uh, a lot of economies that are dependent on the export of oil. And uh, that's important for the global economy uh, because it's going to ease some of the economic tension and pressure from the global pandemic. Since uh, on the you know on the one hand it's going to pressure oil dependent economies, but most economies around the world are not oil dependent. Most of them consume oil, so for them having cheap access to oil is going to be uh, very useful. You know, in particular for places like India, uh, where their currency has been under a lot of pressure. Uh, because they've been because the price of oil has been going up over the past ten years, and because their economy has been growing such that they've been importing more, but they haven't really been exporting more. So that's the fact that they've been importing without exporting more puts pressure on the currency, and so the central bank has been uh, raising interest rates to try to float the currency, but but that itself has been exacerbating a sort of slow motion financial crisis in India that's been uh, playing out. I think I've got some notes on that. We may or may not get to that, but uh, the financial crisis in India is being exacerbated by the higher interest rates. But if oil prices go down, imports will go down, uh, the currency will increase in value, and the central bank can lower interest rates, rates a bit. And hopefully that would, uh, well, I mean, it would alleviate pressure, financial pressure within the Indian economy. So for an economy like India, this is actually a good thing that oil prices are falling. And for a lot of economies around the world, most economies around the world, uh, this is going to be a kind of de facto stimulus. It'll be an economic uh, boon. Whatever the opposite of headwind is, I keep forgetting. But I agree that this crash, just like all the previous crashes in the so-called capitalist economy, have been caused mostly or lead to by the fact that the entire system is run on debt, aka usury. I wouldn't say that. Well, sorry. I mean, maybe that is a question for you. I would let you tackle it if you want to. I wouldn't say that uh, the capitalist system runs on debt. You know, debt is definitely an important aspect of global financial markets and local financial markets, etc. But I think uh, more relevant is expectations. You know, nobody's going to lend you money if they don't expect you to be able to deliver something. And presumably you wouldn't be asking for money if you didn't think yourself that there was an opportunity in the future that you were capable of delivering on. So it's the expectations that really drive financial markets and debt. And it's when expectations become over exuberant or fall out of alignment with reality, uh, that's when you get financial bubbles and in turn, uh, you get the business cycle. You know, People see an opportunity, they invest in it, but maybe they misperceive just the extent of the opportunity and they invest too much. So then there's an economic downturn uh, because there has to be a correction. You know, There's too many factories that were open to produce a given good some of the factories shut down, uh, so then there's a downturn. And then later on, people start investing again, so then there's an upswing. That's a quick and dirty example of the business cycle. That's been happening for as long as there's been capitalism. Uh, I think the business cycle became more apparent specifically in the early 1800s. Uh, so maybe maybe saying it's been around as long as capitalism is saying too much. you know. Uh, but specifically for as long as financial markets have been a major factor in the early 1800s. Uh, you've been able to see a business cycle happening. So uh, 
maybe that doesn't speak specifically to crises per se. Uh, so you could question, you know, what about the, the big crises in capitalism? Are those caused? Uh, are those always uh, undergirded by debt uh, specifically? To a degree, yes. You know, in so much as debt exacerbates uh, exuberance, you know, exacerbates the animal spirits uh, that kind of drive overinvestment in certain sectors of the economy to the point where it can become a crisis. But I think it's a simplification, too, because there are public, uh, you know, there are, there's corruption, there's uh, public institutions like Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac and the role they played in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, you know, there's moral hazard. I mean, there's lots of different factors that go into determining general economic crises, such as they have been in capitalism over time. So debt is definitely an important part of that story, but I feel it's a little too reductive to just say uh, that debt is the main driver of uh, crises in capitalism. You know, I think individual crises almost always have their own flavor. And to the degree that debt does consistently play a role in economic downturns, I feel that's more just an example of the business cycle. Sweet. So I think we did have, um, you mentioned we had a question. Okay, so let me take a look at that. Uh, a number of Eastern European states were experiencing a resurgence of populism in the past few years. This topic has largely been overshadowed of late. Has the situation changed in any appreciable fashion, especially considering that Brexit has now occurred? Short answer, no. <laughs> Definitely not. You know, I mean, Viktor Orban in Hungary is as ensconed in power as ever. Uh, I think the opposition was able to mount a pretty strong challenge in the last elections, but I don't think they were able to really significantly overturn him. You know, I think they were trying to be, take the mayorship of Budapest or something like that, but it didn't quite work out. But the, the, the fact that the opposition in Hungary was able to form a coalition at all uh, was a pretty significant achievement. So that does suggest that the opposition to Viktor Orban and his style of politics is at least uh, getting better organized and getting stronger. But for now, he's definitely got uh, the headwind. No, not the tailwind. There we go. That's the opposite of headwind. He's definitely got uh, the tailwind there in Hungarian politics because uh, he's still very popular amongst broad segments of the population. So for the moment, he's probably safe. But uh, in the future, there seems to be uh, bigger challenges coming for him. But for now, I'm safe. Anyway, that's an example of uh, populism in Hungary continuing, continuing on. Um, there hasn't really been substantive challenges. One of the things I read is that uh, Viktor Orban is pretty good about uh, managing relations with the European Union. The European Union has been angsting a lot over the past decade about what to do about uh, specifically Viktor Orban, but in general, the broader question of how to maintain democratic political norms within the European Union. I mean, if you want to join the European Union, you have to meet certain standards of democratic liberalism. Uh, but there hasn't really been as much question about what to do if after you're in the European Union, you start reneging on that. Uh, or is that reneging? Reneging. Reneging, okay. Thank you. Um, so there's not really strong institutional measures that the European Union can use to kind of coerce or punish or you know, otherwise force states to stay on a liberal democratic path. So there's been angst over that. But uh, in the cases where the European Union has confronted Hungary about Viktor Orban and his populism, Viktor Orban has generally given way in a way that he hasn't been criticized for in Hungary, but that appeases uh, the European Union. The fundamental problem still remains, uh, but he's managed to avoid opprobrium for the most part. So he's still going strong and probably will be for some time. 
in a case like Poland, which is the other sort of poster child for Eastern European populism right now, uh, they're not as bad off as Hungary in terms of uh, illiberal democracy, such as it's been called. You know, the AKP gets a lot of grief, but they haven't gone as far as Orban in terms of institutionalizing illiberalism. Most of the complaints there have centered around uh, attempts to politicize the judiciary uh, by the AKP, or not the AKP, rather the uh, Law and Justice Party in Poland, uh, the one headed by, I think his name is Kaczynski, President Kaczynski. <clears throat> yeah, they're still going strong too, but there's a much stronger opposition within Poland to that. You know, there's sort of populists versus liberal Democrats there. And uh, the European Union has been more forceful when deal uh, dealing with Poland and the, the Law and Justice Party than with Hungary, partly because the Law and Justice Party and Kaczynski have been less finessed in how they deal with the European Union's criticisms and attempts to try to punish them for uh, some of the things they've been doing with the judiciary in Poland. Uh, but even so, uh, Poland, the Polish government does not seem to be deterred from its path. So it seems like uh, they're maintaining popularity and they're, they've been able to deflect attempts by the European Union to kind of get them back on track in terms of liberal democratic norms, at least, in so much as those, those have been broken anyway. I know that there's a lot of people in uh, Poland who support the government who are critical that they're doing anything that's super populist or that they're breaking with liberal democratic norms. Uh, so I won't comment too much on that. You know, I grant that that, uh, that grant that it's debatable. Uh, but regardless, the point is that uh, the law and justice government in Poland is still popular and is still going strong. And there hasn't really been uh, a good solution to the question of what the European Union can really do about cases like Poland and uh, Poland and Hungary. Uh, other cases, I think those are the two main cases in Eastern Europe. Uh, Slovakia and Czechia, I don't think, have nearly the same degree of populist politics. I think Czechia does have like a billionaire president, but I think he's more, I don't think he's explicitly a populist. I don't know if we have any Czech listeners, but maybe they can describe their president in brief just to give me a quick idea. But I didn't really have the impression that he was a big populist. And Slovakia actually just had elections that resulted in a major anti-corruption party uh, taking power. I've actually got notes on that, although it doesn't focus as much on the anti-corruption party as the uh, allegedly neo-Nazi party that's been doing well. That's uh, a little disconcerting. Uh, we may talk about that later. But Slovakia anyway elected mostly, you know, the big winner in the election was the anti-corruption party. So I don't know that slow populism is all that ascendant there, though it is still a force. And uh, countries like Bulgaria and Romania don't really have problems with populism as we think of it in Western Europe and Central Europe. You know, populism there is more of like a traditionalism almost, because those are countries that came out of the uh, the communist bloc. You know, there's they have notions of centralized government and command economies that date from the uh, pre-democracy period. And so some political parties still run on campaigns that uphold some of those notions. So that's that's uh, their rhetoric. Those parties have rhetoric that is similar to that of populists in the West, but they're not really new. You know, that's an establishment almost politics in a sense. It's kind of old news. I think there was a big row in Romania. I think it was when a socialist party that actually had was effectively the successor party of the old communist party that had uh, governed Romania's one party state through the Cold War. Uh, they'd won an election and there was a big hue and cry when they started passing, you know, allegedly corruption reforms, anti-corruption reforms that uh, suspiciously 
weakened anti-corruption mechanisms. I think famously they tried to liberalize laws on uh, bribery. That was the big one that made headlines, but that was one of a range of reforms they were uh, proposing. But in a case like Romania and Bulgaria, though, that's more the form that populism takes. It's not, it's the same style of politics, but the framing is different because of the Cold War and communism. It's framed as more of a historical legacy rather than something new that's rebelling against the establishment. You know, the newer political parties tend to be the post-democracy post liberal democratic parties of one sort or another. But they have a mixed bag because corruption is pretty rife in uh, Romania and Bulgaria. You know, political cultures haven't really entirely evolved all that much from the communist period. Some of the political norms from the communist period carried over, and that has that's had a deleterious effect on the uh, political culture going forward. It's been getting better. Civil society has been improving a lot in Romania and Bulgaria over the past 10 years, especially in response to that uh, socialist party I just mentioned in Romania. There was a big civil society response to that. <clears throat> but they've still got a lot of room for improvement. But I don't think you can kind of look at Romania and Bulgaria and say that there's populism there. That's at least not in the style that's been happening out uh, in Central and Western Europe. It's not quite the same. There is a lot of skepticism of immigration. That's uh, something that you see all over Europe. But that's not really, that's not even a populist issue. That's more of a consensus issue. I feel like uh, the majority of the population, the majority of the voters in Eastern Europe probably share that as a common preference. So I wouldn't, you know, in in, in the West, in Western Europe and the United States and, you know, places like that, uh, anti-immigration sentiment is associated with populism. But I don't think you can say that's true in Eastern Europe because it's just so broadly held. So that's more of a consensus issue. Populism in Eastern Europe takes more the form of uh, illiberalism, however you want to define that. You know, this breaking with liberal democratic norms and the maintenance of corruption and failing to do enough about corruption, things like that. That's more the that's more the framing there in Eastern Europe, I think. What countries are people uh, migrating from? Uh, Syria is a big one. That's been a big driver, but also pretty much any conflict zone like Afghanistan or Libya. Uh, there's there was a lot back in 2014-15 from Eritrea uh, that had to do with uh, people trying to escape the uh, mandatory military service, which was Prussian in style. It was like 30 years of mandatory military service that people who were drafted were facing. So no shock that people were trying to get away from that. Uh, there was also a lot of immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa who were trying to come up through Libya. Uh, those were mostly economic migrants, people who were just looking for opportunity. So uh, I think that pretty much covers it. There was some from Iran, uh, some from I think maybe Somalia. It was a pretty big range. There was a lot. But yeah, there's there's a lot. There was a pretty broad range. But I think the biggest single group is Syrian. Yeah, that was the biggest single one. Yeah, the refugee camps with Syrians are still a major political issue in Turkey and uh, Europe. Let's see. Yeah, so the situation regarding populism in Eastern Europe, I would not say has appreciably changed. It's more or less on track. It's uh, The trend is continuing. It's not really escalating either. Again, it's mostly Hungary and Poland that kind of gets all the attention. You know, most of the other countries don't really qualify. They do have some populist sentiments, uh, like anti-immigration sentiment. But again, like I was explaining, that's more of a consensus issue than a manifestation of anti-establishment populism. So populism is not really as bad as you might think it is in Eastern Europe, at least not as bad as the media sometimes makes it out to be. Anti-corruption is probably the bigger single issue in a lot of Eastern European countries. Uh, but in, in so much as populism has manifested, 
in Eastern Europe, in Hungary and Poland, it's it's still a problem. It hasn't been getting appreciably worse, but it's not really getting appreciably, appreciably better either. Uh, since I don't think, like I was saying before, the European Union just doesn't have a policy tool for that, that it can really use. And it's really been struggling and angsting to figure, to find one. I don't think they're any closer now than they have been before. Let's see. How is Russia in de facto control over OPEC? They aren't a member, I thought. They're not in de facto control. I meant Saudi Arabia is de facto leader. I'm, I'm, I apologize if I misspoke. That happens sometimes. Uh, yeah, the Saudis are the de facto leader of OPEC. Um, Russia is a major oil producer, and so the Saudis had been coordinating with them on uh, oil production in order to try to influence the world price of oil, uh, since both their governments defend pretty heavily on uh, oil revenue and oil prices, oil prices, oil for their government revenue. <clears throat> Actually, it might be worth mentioning here. I kind of forgot to mention this before. Um, I was talking about the break-even price uh, at which produ oil producers in Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United States uh, take a profit. And historically speaking, the Saudis have had the lowest. But that's not entirely true now. Uh, it's still true in terms of raw oil production costs. Uh, but if you start incorporating other things like government revenue, like uh, at what point... Uh, does the government have positive inflows? Like uh, at what point does the government start running a uh, surplus in its budget? So there's a certain price of oil beyond which you can kind of calculate that uh, just because the government is so dependent on oil, on oil revenue. And the break-even price for the Saudi government writ large has actually been going up a lot over the past 10 years because the government has been spending so much more on the economic reform program and the war in Yemen. So technically, uh, the traditional advantage the Saudis have had, which is having the lower break-even price, is not necessarily still valid because uh, their break-even price has actually gone up a lot over the past 10 years. And it's actually even higher than the Russian government's uh, break-even price. Again, not talking about Russian oil producers, talking about the Russian government's break-even price, the price, the oil price beyond which the government starts running a surplus. Uh, the Russian government actually has a lower such break-even price than the Saudis do. And uh, U.S. producers, for their part, actually have uh, lowered their break-even profit point quite a bit over time. They've been, coming, they've been becoming more efficient over time. So they're not in nearly as much danger of having to shut down because of oil prices as they were before, although there is still pressure. Uh, the pressure for the fracking companies in the U.S. has more to do with debt. You know, a lot of those companies have been soaking up debt. You know, they've uh, been taking out so much debt over time that it could represent a bubble that could be a problem for banks. Because they, because that uh, that debt pool is just is just so large that if a number of them shut down, there could be repercussions financially. Uh, the financial system would probably be able to handle it because there's been a lot of measures taken since 2008 to try to ensure that banks are a lot more robust to shocks like that. Uh, but given how the global economy is doing uh, now, is not the now is not really the best time to have a financial shock in addition to the the, the externality represented by the global pandemic. Uh, of COVID-19. COVID <clears throat> so I'm sure uh, financiers would just as soon avoid that possibility, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with the uh, oil producers in the U.S. They'll probably be okay, but uh, they're going to be under financial stress for a while. Let's see, that's all we had for questions here. 
Yeah, it seems like uh, 2020 is working pretty hard to be worse than 2019. <laughs> well, I don't know about worse. It's more just it's evolving faster. Let's put it like that. It's just bad in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot happening, but, uh, you know, it's all part of the natural ebb and flow of the universe. You know, everything is cyclical. So we're going to, you know, we were due for a big apocal change. So this is what it looks like. And uh, hopefully we can get through it without too much. You know, like you were saying before, if you're going to have a massive global pandemic, you could do a lot worse than COVID-19. So this could be a good dry run for something worse later on. And this may allow us to prepare better for it. And in general, this could allow a, this could act as a de facto stress test for government institutions everywhere. And in that sense, could pave the way for improved governance down the line. Uh, doesn't necessarily deal with structural economic change or political realignment or any of that other, you know, big ticket change that's happening. But, you know, this is part of it. So it could all be for the good in the long run if we manage it correctly. Mm hmm. So let's see, what else did we have? We, I've still got a lot here. Uh, is there any particular region? I could do an election update briefly. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, have you heard about the people dropping out over the past couple of weeks? We had some updates during our last segment of some people who dropped out. Gotcha. Who's left? Well, Michael Bloomberg dropped out, so he's done. Uh, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren dropped out. And so, in effect, and of course, uh, you know, Buttigieg and uh, however you pronounce his name, I'm going to go with Buttigieg this time. Uh, Buttigieg and um, Clau, gosh, Klobuchar, uh, both of them dropped out as well. Although I think we might have talked about that a bit. I think that actually happened the day of <laughs> when we were doing it last time. So effectively, the Democratic nomination is now a two-man race. It's uh, Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders. And uh, that would have been about the extent of my update. But uh, since we skipped last week, the events over the past week is that uh, Joe Biden has kind of surged into the lead uh, since he took Michigan in particular. Michigan was a big win for him because that was considered a big litmus test for his ability, well, for either candidate's ability to win one of the Rust Belt states that Trump had taken from the Democratic Party in 2016. And so since those states are very much in Democratic strategists' mind, uh, the fact that Joe Biden was able to beat out Bernie Sanders in Michigan was a, kind of a big win strategically for him. Now, Bernie Sanders still technically could win the nomination, depending on how future states go, because we're still assigning delegates as each primary happens. So if Bernie Sanders decides he wants to go all the way to the convention and have a contested convention, uh, he may possibly, mathematically, it's possible that he could win between now and then enough delegates to win the nomination uh, at the convention. Uh, and he hasn't signaled that he's going to quit. He said that he's going to keep going. You know, he hasn't sent any signals that he wants to drop out yet. So that's still conceivable. But for the moment, uh, Joe Biden has the lead in delegates. He's been winning relatively more primaries. And uh, more importantly, I think, is the fact that he was able to win Michigan. That, that really was a big deal for strategists in the Democratic Party, I think. And I think they're going to start rallying behind him even more, supporting him more, even more than they already were. <clears throat> so let's see. I think that, uh, that pretty much covers that. There hasn't been a whole lot happening otherwise that I took note of. Doesn't mean there's nothing else happening. I don't haven't necessarily been following it too closely, but those were the big ticket items that I had listed. Well, Alleluia, the gentleman who does the timestamps for 
these segments was asking for an Australia update. Oh, an Australia update. Well, the country was on fire for a long time. Yeah. And then it was flooded for a long time. Which put out the wrath of God kind of stuff. (laughs) That kind of dealt with the fires, but it presented a whole new set of problems. I think uh, nature has calmed down a bit since then in Australia. But the government has taken kind of a beating, so it may be that they're in for uh, some political changes. They may not be the political changes Australians like, since this uh, the current prime minister was actually a, a compromise candidate who was just barely able to uh, win out in a leadership contest within the Conservative Party. And the guy he beat out was sort of a borderline Trumpian-style populist to give you an idea of the style of politics we're talking about. So if the current guy loses out, that may be what uh, Australian governance looks like going forward. They may lose out to more of a populist style of politician. <clears throat> but that's still kind of gray. And it's still not entirely clear what's going to happen there. Yeah, Beyond that, I don't really have much on Australia. I think the economy is still doing okay. Not great since the commodities uh, market has downturned over the past couple years, but Uh, That's kind of put a dent in things. And there's been a lot of debates in Australia about Chinese influence. You know, I've I've heard the argument that Australia is kind of a test case for Chinese political influence in a democratic country. It seems like uh, some people have postulated that the Chinese government is focusing some of its efforts there just to try to see how well they work. Because there's a lot of Chinese economic influence on Australia since Australia sells a lot of commodity goods to uh, China. And so there's more influence they have to work with there. There's a lot of Chinese living in Australia uh, because a lot of Chinese travel there for education. And uh, there's some people who have links to uh, Chinese institutions. I think there was one what would you, Chinese Australian politician and uh, she got in trouble because she was revealed to have links with some kind of uh, PLA institution of some kind. I don't remember quite what the details were. Uh, but she'd been kind of doing deals with somebody. She said that she wasn't aware of it, and I think she stepped down from her post in the administration. Uh, so there was some big deal about that. But uh, in general, there's still an ongoing political debate in China, in Australia, rather, uh, about Chinese influence and what to do about it. And there's still not really a clear-cut answer. I think there's a, a former prime minister. I think he was the last Labour prime minister. No, he couldn't have been the last Labour, because he was prime minister like 15, 20 years ago. I don't quite remember his name, but there's a former prime minister in Australia who, since he's stepped out of politics, has lobbied pretty hard on behalf of China within Australia. Well, maybe lobbied hard is putting it too strongly, but he has lobbied more on their behalf. Uh, For example, he's advocated for an Australian foreign policy that distances Australia from the United States and tries to maintain neutrality in conflicts between the United States and China which is a pretty significant proposal because that would uh, definitely mark a break in Australia's traditional foreign policy over the past half century of uh, aligning pretty closely with U.S. foreign policy. You'll note that no European nation participated in the Vietnam War with the United States, but Australia did, along with New Zealand. Uh, Very few, well, well, some European countries participated in the Iraq War, but uh, Australia most de- definitely did. So, you know, just to give you an example of how tight Australia is with the United States in terms of foreign policy, there's generally pretty tight coordination there. So for a major leader in Australia to propose to distance from the United States and try to be more of a neutral country, that's a pretty significant proposal. I don't think it's gained much traction, 
but I think it is going to be more of a tempting proposition as Australian uh, dependence, well, maybe not dependence, but as Australia's economic interdependency with China increases over time. Uh, there's going to be an innate attraction there because I don't think anybody in Australia necessarily wants to get dragged into, say, a pointless trade war or a pointless uh, limited war that is perhaps instigated by one or the other of China and the United States. Let's see. So China, the economy, uh, you know, nature, uh, politics. Uh, I think there's also a drought happening. I think that's one of the contributing factors to the fires. I think even though there's been flooding, that's kind of suppressed the fires. The drought is still ongoing. Well, I mean, how can you have a drought when there's flooding? So I, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I guess I contradicted myself. I guess the drought may be over, but I, su I suspect people from Australia in chat may be able to correct me on that. These are the items that I'm remembering. I can't really, I'm not conjuring much else. I'm sure there's been more happening, but I think Australia has been relatively quiet over the past few weeks. I think a country could have drought and flood, or sorry, yeah, drought and flood at the same time. That's just meaning that the water is in the wrong places. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <clears throat> so that's a brief Australia out update. Maybe not the best update, but it is technically an update. Yeah, I just haven't I haven't heard too much from them. I don't think they've had too many cases of uh, COVID-19 yet either. I'm sure they've got at least some, but I don't think it's reached uh, breakout proportions too much yet. I could be wrong on that, though. You know, chat can please correct me on that. Oh, we still don't have uh, you still don't have the little flag counter thing on here, do you? No, that's a special thing that you have to an add. extension yeah. thing. I could add that real quick. It wouldn't really take too much time. So let's see. That was the election update. We did Australia real quick. Uh, we could talk about Iraq real quick, too. Actually, we could just do like a Middle East type thing. A little quick Middle East update here. Uh, <clears throat> so for those of you who were paying attention back in uh, January, there was a kerfuffle, if you like between the United States and Iran, where some rockets were lobbed at uh, some American military personnel, killed a few people, I think one person, one contractor died. And the US responded by assassinating a major Iranian military and political figure. And there was some concern about that on the internet, shall we say. And uh, fortunately, nothing much came of it. And since then, things have calmed down. So we have an update though on that situation over the past couple of weeks. There's been more rocketing and more U.S. military personnel have actually died. So for those of you who are excited by January, you're going to love March. <laughs> so let's see. Let's get through some of the details here. This is a relatively short update, so I don't have a whole lot for you, but this is just to get you up to date on what's been happening. Uh, <clears throat> there was a rocket attack, an, un an unclaimed rocket attack, I should say, on Taji Military Camp, uh, which is a military base north of Baghdad. Uh, it hosts U.S. and U.K. troops. There are some European troops helping with the anti-Islamic state mission in Iraq, which is nominally why U.S. and European troops are there in the first place. Uh, the rocket attack resulted in three Western personnel being killed, uh, two Americans, one British. Now, airstrikes in eastern Syria resulted. That was the U.S. retaliation for this, and they killed about 26 Iraqis from an Iran-based uh, Shiite paramilitary group. Uh, probably Kaitab Hezbollah. And after that, uh, airstrikes, further airstrikes, I infer, uh, targeted five Kaitab Hezbollah facilities in Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi military says three soldiers and two policemen and a civilian were killed in the U.S. counterstrike. Uh, 
so that's further retaliation there. Now, after that, uh, Iraqi militias retaliated to that with another rocket attack, which injured some Americans uh, and Iraqis, uh, in this case, again, in Taji Air Base. <clears throat> so that's a quick update there. It's very short, but it illustrates that things are escalating in Iraq. It would seem that uh, the Iranians themselves have not been directly retaliating, at least beyond that initial retaliation after Soleimani's death that targeted that camp in northern Iraq. Uh, but now local militias are starting to uh, activate and they're starting to, they've uh, been attacking these bases and killed a few people. And the U.S. has been responding with airstrikes, not only in Iraq, but also Syria, uh, where some of these Iraqi militias operate, generally at the behest or at least in league with uh, the Iranian government. Uh, I think the strategy here, just to kind of give some brief commentary, I think the strategy on the part of the militias is not necessarily to drive the U.S. out of Iraq, although I'm sure they would love that. Uh, rather, I think they're trying to goad the United States into attacking them on Iraqi territory, because that's pretty unpopular with most of the Iraqi population, especially nationalists who don't really like the uh, Iraqi militias that align with Iran. And I think part of the objective there is to try to deflect public attention away from the public protests that have been happening in Iraq that are generally anti-Iranian in flavor. So by having these attacks happen in Iraq where the U.S. is launching airstrikes, it's reminding nationalists that not only Iran, but also the United States has been acting uh, in, in influencing Iraqi politics. So I suspect there's a political motive here beyond just retaliating for the assassination of militia leaders. That's an important point. You know, it wasn't just Soleimani, the Iranian general who was killed by the United States in that assassination attempt. Uh, also in that, I think in that very same strike, actually, a number of Soleimani's aides and then a couple of major uh, Iraqi militia leaders were also in the same car. So that was a very high value automobile geopolitically speaking. And so I think that's part of the reason why the U.S. and Trump in particular was so tempted to launch that airstrike, taking it out. <clears throat> so Iraqi militias are retaliating in part here for the assassination of their leaders. And uh, that's leading to some tit-for-tat escalation that could uh, escalate further. Uh, I don't think it's going to turn into a general war or anything like that. Uh, and, and again, I think the intention is mostly political rather than military. I suspect both sides would be pretty content with just having an airstrike in response to a rocket attack and then to have that go back and forth uh, going forward. And maybe that the Trump administration, for political reasons, decides to disproportionately respond. Uh, that could lead to something interesting. But for now, it's being it's being kept under control, basically. It's still on the relatively light tit-for-tat stage at the moment. But that's something to watch that could... Uh, turn into something pretty quick if one side or the other really wanted it to. So let's see, that's Iraq. So then I also had something for Syria because we'd been talking about Turkish uh, confrontation of the Russians and Syrians uh, over in Syria. So let's give a brief update on that if I can find it. Uh, let's see, no, not that. Oh, here we go, Syrian update. So the update over the past couple weeks, uh, Syrians say they've shot down three Turkish drones and closed airspace in the northwest of their country. And in other words, any authorized uh, aircraft detected there will be considered hostile and shot down. Um, shooting down drones isn't too big a deal. You know, they can kind of do that and get away with it. Uh, the reason they're targeting the drones is that the drones are providing intelligence to Syrian rebels on the ground and possibly also engaging in airstrikes. It's uh, not entirely clear the degree to which Turkish Drones are perpetrating airstrikes against Syrian army positions. 
at the very least, Turkish artillery is targeting Syrian army positions, but possibly also drones. <clears throat> so since then, Erdogan, well, not only since that, but just in general, since this tit-for-tat series of escalations has been happening between the uh, Turks and the Syrians, uh, President Erdogan has met with Vladimir Putin, and apparently a ceasefire has been agreed. Uh, the Turks explicitly said, however, that they reserve the right to retaliate against Syrian aggression. So that could indicate that maybe this is more of an agreement between the Russian forces in Syria specifically and the, Sy and the Turkish forces, rather than an agreement that encompasses the Syrian military as well. That's possible, but speculation on my part. Uh, the joint Turco, oh, one of the conditions of the ceasefire deal is that there are going to be joint Turco-Russian patrols along the M4 highway. Now, this is a big concession by Turkey because this highway actually runs east-west through the middle of Idlib province, which is still largely controlled by Syrian rebels. So this effectively expands the presence of the Russian military and its forces within Syria into Idlib province, where they hadn't really been operating before, although it is technically at the auspices of the Turks. Hypothetically, they could kick them out at will if they so desired. But the fact that the Turks agreed to it at all is pretty significant. Uh, also, the deal did not include a Syrian military withdrawal to uh, the lines that were held before their big offensive against Idlib started about a year and a half ago or so. So they're not going to be, they're not going to go back to the lines, uh, the battle lines, such as they were during the negotiation of the Sochi Agreement. <clears throat> Now, this is, uh, this is all pretty interesting to me because Turkey has been moving troops into Idlib province since all of this started. And they've apparently, what I read is that they have enough troops in Syria now to comprise a mechanized division, which is a lot. In modern military terms, an entire mechanized division is a lot of dudes. Um, the Russians have been moving in troops as well, but I don't think they've got nearly, I don't think they have nearly that many as what the Turks have. So the fact that the Turk the the fact that Turkey gave concessions in spite of its strong ground presence, I think, is significant. I think that really says something. Uh, I think it either says that the Turkish threats that they're going to intervene in Idlib uh, with their own military beyond what they're already doing, I think those threats lack some credibility. I think the fact that they're willing to give concessions on this suggests that maybe they're not entirely serious about those threats. Now the alternative there is that the Russians gave them something in exchange for that concession. And that could be an agreement to not support further Syrian operations in Idlib uh, or to protect Syrian forces from Turkish retaliations. And in fact, the Russians have said they don't condone the Syrian army's offensive and they're not going to participate in it. And in exchange for that, Russian troops get to help patrol the M4 highway. That's possible. But I think since that deal was more or less de facto announced, if you want to call that an announcement, uh, I think since then, the evidence suggests that maybe Turkish threats lack credibility because uh, Turk, the Turkish government keeps issuing threats. They have been, you know, since the whole thing started up here, but they haven't really been following through with them all that much. You know, they have been escalating their involvement, again, artillery strikes, whatnot, uh, but they haven't been really trying to push back Syrian forces back to Sochi lions. And I think that, that really, for me, is the marker of involvement for the Turkish government, the marker of uh, dedication. You know, if they're really dedicated, if their threats really have credibility, that's the thing that they would be pushing for. The fact that they're just trying to stop the offensive, I think, suggests that their goals are much more limited and that their desire to get involved is relatively limited. So that's still speculation on my part. That's what I predict, but I can't really prove that per se. That's just my own analysis. <clears throat> but that's something to watch going forward. It seems like there's going, if, any, if nothing else, it seems like uh, the risk of confrontation between the Turks and the Russians is on decline. 
Uh, you know, between the agreement and the joint patrols, it seems like the Russians and Turks have agreed to whatever happens with the Syrian army, they themselves will not at least fight each other. So that could send a signal to the Syrian military that uh, they need to cut back, since if they get in trouble, the Russian military isn't going to be there to bail them out. Uh, but on the other hand, it may be that the Turks are too timid to really put the Syrian military in a position where they would have to call for help. It may be that they would worry that they're still worried that the Russian military may bail them out after all, and that they may inadvertently end up in a confrontation. I'm still not sure entirely what the Turkish government wants to do there. I'm not entirely sure the Turkish government knows what the Turkish government wants to do there. There's a lot of mixed evidence there and mixed signals to read. Uh, but this is what's happening anyway. There is technically a ceasefire in place. The Syrian army, I don't think, is observing it, or at least it probably won't. And so this space is still one to watch as a result. This is still a story that's unfolding. And uh, so this is where we are. So that's a quick update on Syria and then uh, on Iraq. Awesome. Well, that's pretty good timing. We're at two hours and 55 minutes. We were able to talk about coronavirus and also other things in the same episode, given the news. I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's plenty more. There's been peace talks in Afghanistan. There's a new bill that could uh, strangle <laughs> encryption on the Internet. Uh, there's emergency funding the federal government released. There's all kinds of election drama going on in Israel. That was the I've got a bunch of notes on that. And there's a Brexit update, uh, some interesting comments from Vladimir Putin and the constitutional restructuring going on there. Just lots of stuff I've got backed up here. So we've got plenty more for next time when we get to it. Sweet. I have the geolocation thing set up. So Ooh. next time that should be refreshed and working. It's not populated right now because I think it's whenever a viewer joins, uh, it lists the country they joined from. So I just turned it on. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Yep. Next time we can check that and that can be a prompt to discuss what's going on in those countries yeah that was a fun you very much in the day yeah well it's back online so nice next weekend we can say hey to the lovely people from all the different countries who tune in cool cool yeah thanks for having me always fun yep awesome doing another episode with you thank you fuzzy cord for handling questions and chat for giving us some good info and corrections on what we've been talking about we will see you on the next World Discussion with Agent Smith. Smith, Smith. <laughs> Later, dude. Later. <laughs>